Good morning. This is the uh, January 12th, 2023 session of the Planning Board. Uh, I do have a note from Historic Preservation that on January 12th, uh, 2010, a devastating earthquake hit Haiti. And uh, not that that's Montgomery County, but in response, Montgomery County Public School children undertook a range of fundraising to aid the relief effort. Examples included Belmont Elementary, Wheaton Woods Elementary, Eastern uh, Middle School students who raised $4,000 for the Red Cross, and Seven Locks Elementary School students who donated $850 from their piggy banks to donate to Doctors Without Borders. So it's nice to start out with a with a good note in history, even though it was precipitated by a terrible event. Um, I have one thing from last week. Uh, we as a board recommended a change to uh, the transparency bill before the General Assembly that included the discretion for the county council to uh, determine the salaries of uh, uh, Planning Board members. Um, I have since learned that that provision already exists in the law, so uh, it's unnecessary to amend the Transparency Act uh, to do that. Um, uh, we have uh, four commissioners today. Uh, right now, Cherie Branson, uh, uh, Commissioner uh, Hill, David Hill, and Roberta Panera are all in attendance here uh, at the Wheaton headquarters. The, the first thing we have on preliminary matters is just uh, one resolution, the White Oak Self-Storage Forest Conservation Plan. Uh, I will just tell my, my fellow board members that although we did really three things with the self-storage um, uh, facility, the conditional use, and and the um, uh, local map amendment. Uh, the board's authority only resides with the forest conservation. Uh, the other matters are sent by letter to uh, to the hearing examiner, so we don't have resolutions to approve on those. So I will entertain a uh, motion to approve the White Oak storage. To approve Forest Conservation Plan yep. H-147. Second. No Second. Third, fourth. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 All those opposed, zero. Okay. The motion's approved. Uh, believe it or not, like I said, that's the only uh, preliminary matter we have. Uh, um, interesting for the first time in our tenure here. Um, and now we'll go to the roundtable discussion on a report from the planning director. Good morning, commissioners. Tanya Stern, acting planning director for the record. Uh, for my director's report today, uh, we are going to focus on an initiative that the planning department has had underway for several years. Uh, this is our design excellence um, initiative. Uh, we have uh, here today with us uh, um, Paul, Mor Paul Mortensen, who will actually walk through our presentation. Um, he is a key part of our staff who has been leading um, this effort along uh, within a director's office and working with uh, staff and, and uh, throughout our department on this effort. Um, and uh, I think what I will just say, just as an introduction, 
is that uh, design is a critical component of high quality, vibrant communities. And there are multiple ways um, to achieve uh, quality design in communities, both through architecture and through the public realm. And so uh, Paul is going to, again, walk through how our department um, has been um, undertaking this work uh, through a variety of functions that, uh, that we do as a planning department. So with that, I will turn it over to Paul. Uh, thank you, uh, Director Wu. Um, um, my name is Paul Mortensen, for the record. I'm the senior urban designer in the director's office, and I am the leader of the uh, Design Excellence Program um, that uh, was started back in 2015. Um, as one of the nation's most diverse and educated and prosperous counties, Montgomery County desires neighborhoods, public spaces, and buildings of the highest quality design to reflect the cultural health uh, and to maintain a competitive advantage within our region. Design excellence isn't just about development budgets. It's about unleashing the architectural and urban design talent we have in this region to make our county the most social, equitable, and thriving community it, it can be. Design excellence is increasingly important as available land for development in the county is shrinking, densities in our centers are increasing, and priorities for excellence shared public spaces becomes more acute. These development challenges present a great need to create and enhance attractive, safe, and sustainable places to live, work, and play. Design excellence is an important tool for attracting the best uh, and brightest to our county, be it residents, businesses, and or visitors. To raise the quality of design throughout the county, the Montgomery County Planning Department has launched a comprehensive design excellence initiative focused on the themes of inspiration, collaboration, and clarity. There are many aspects to design excellence. The goals of design excellence in Montgomery County are ultimately to create the best, equitable, beautiful, environmentally, and financially sustainable physical form within our region. County policies, master plans, and project reviews must all be focused on creating a public realm that supports all our social, environmental, and financial needs. The physical form of our neighborhoods and communities matters, so our architecture must support that. We promote design excellence through education and public outreach, which then informs our development review. You've probably heard uh, the question before, is there a there there? Well, design excellence initiatives are in place to make sure that unique qualities of individual neighborhoods and centers are maintained and that we can ultimately say, yes, there is a there there. Some of the elements of design excellence that we work on within the greater planning department include Thrive Montgomery, which was just passed this past year in the general plan update, master plans and master plan design guidelines that come from uh, the general plan. The CR zone and incentive density points is a big element. Regulatory review, Bethesda, the Bethesda is now Silver Spring, uh, DAP or the design advisory panels are part of this initiative. 
policy review and modifications, the third place blog, which I hope you all have had a chance to read, design excellence awards and the recognition of great architecture in our community, and then staff uh, recognition and community education, which I'll get into in a minute. All of these elements ensures that the urban, suburban, and rural context are fully appreciated in the design of places and support of the public realm is fully integrated in everything we think about. The creation of complete communities within our urban, suburban, and rural centers can only be achieved through quality, sustainable architecture that frames and supports a strong and vibrant public realm of streets and great places of shared use. Again, great communities, a tenant of Thrive Montgomery 2050, is supported by a strong and vibrant public realm of streets and great places of shared use. Design excellence supports this type of community. Walkable communities linked by multiple forms of transportation and strengthened by their context within the county's geography and within the context of adjacent architecture helps to create authentic communities for people of all ages and cultures. Design ties these aspects together. Through design and under the umbrella of the three E's that I'm sure you all heard about, racial equity social and social justice, environmental resilience, and economic competitiveness, those are them. The silos of these elements evaluated through the master planning process of public spaces and parks, urbanism, environmental stewardship, historic preservation and economic viability are all molded together as one. This work then forms the basis of our master plan and sector plans and the planning initiatives such as complete streets, attainable housing and several others. One of the most significant parts of design excellence is the regulatory review process implemented by the three area groups. Many of these projects go through a thorough design review process where staff evaluates their conformance to the appropriate master plans and evaluates the development's impacts on the public realm and adjacent communities. One example of design review is, is this project here, which is the Battery Lane Site C development shown here, which I believe you're going to be hearing about shortly. This isn't a regulatory item before us. No. Well, we'll, we'll see. The, the, um, we'll, we'll see? No. I want to, well, I want to show me. you the evaluation that we went through as an area can group. I, can I just jump is in for a, a second? Plan? If we haven't brought this to the board, maybe we can just get through this one. Okay. Please. Well, let's, let's just go to the next one. Okay. A project that uh, you're also very familiar with since you're sitting in the building today is the Wheaton headquarters. When the project first came to uh, uh, our review and discussion with design, as you can see on the left, the building looked very corporate. Uh, elevations uh, were mostly all glass. And the, there was a small lobby entry into the building that was very well uh, reinforced and protected uh, and enclosed. There wasn't really the elements of the park and planning that we had appreciated in our previous locations that were part of this project. 
They lead, so the new building in following the reviews had an adjustments to the elevations, which brought in more color and more uh, enclosure, similar to a lot of the buildings in our region and the colors of the buildings in our region, particularly the masonry colors. The circulation was emphasized through the building to show that you know, we're all working together and working uh, among ourselves on the different floors. And a new lobby was introduced to the plan that was open and to, to discussion in a very democratic in a way where people could feel free to come in to talk to the different agencies about the county's uh, issues and, and initiatives. The building was transformed from a more secure centric looking building to a more democratic and open type of setting for our new home. Another building that uh, I'll just show you that, that went through a lot of extensive review with the down county group was the Marriott headquarters. And the Marriott, you know, we reviewed the Marriott headquarters and adjacent hotel, and we knew that at the time this would be the tallest building in, in Bethesda. Marriott was initially hesitant to providing a forward-thinking, exciting building. It is not really part of their culture. They're a little more staid and, and uh, reserved. And so they had to provide a design that was commensurate, in our opinion, to the importance of its location within Bethesda. The large mass was broken up through our discussions into smaller masses so that the, it was broken up and did not look like it was just one overpowering building uh, along the street. The pedestrian through block connection was greatly enhanced, providing places for dining and socializing for building tenants as well as the public uh, in between the two buildings. A unique top was pronounced to bring greater character to the skyline within the city. Internal public uses were encouraged at the first floor to dramatically enliven the public realm of the streets and the through block connection. And there were elements that staff encouraged through our design review that the Marriott design team implemented in this design. And this is the building that we have today that I think came out as a wonderful solution from our work. Working with the different area groups here at the planning and with other county agencies, we helped create performance-based guidelines that demonstrates potential solutions that balances the needs of safe, pedestrian-oriented, and accessible growth with the effective emergency service operations that continue to ensure that redevelopment and future development creates places that are walkable, safe, sustainable, and economically competitive through high-quality urban design. We work directly with the fire department, in this case, and the Department of Permitting Services and DOT on these guidelines that allow streets to be narrower and safer for pedestrians while still allowing emergency access to adjacent buildings. As I mentioned earlier, recognition of the, of the talents of our staff is another element of design excellence. Each year, we organize and promote staff photo contests with specific topics to promote and show off the many great artistic talents our parks and planning staff possess. These great photos are used to show off our talents and abilities to the public, to award great work among our staff, and to help grow our design excellence photo library that we use for many of our different projects. Categories have included specific architectural building types, different public spaces and public uh, space types, 
the diversity of people and equity heightened uh, through physical design in our region and throughout the county, country, and the world. In the eight years since we began our formal design excellence work, great strides have been made to quality of design in Montgomery County and the uh, confidence of our staff in promoting a very high quality public realm has increased as well. Design excellence is making a difference. The Design Excellence Awards uh, were begun in 2015. Awards are now occurring every two years, and there have been five design award competition events with a total of nine award winners so far. 20 citations have been awarded by the independent juries for elements within projects that they thought were deserving and needed recognition. And so here are some of the numbers. We have reviewed so far 128 projects within the county for these awards. The Design Excellence Award competition is part of Montgomery Planning's initiative to improve the quality of Montgomery County's built environment through design review, design guidelines, and master plan policy reforms and programs. Planning Department's Design Excellence Awards recognizes exceptional work in architecture and landscape architecture that enhances the public design, the urban design and public realm of our communities within the county, and which have been completed over the past decade. This event is held in conjunction with the Potomac Valley AIA's Design Excellence Awards uh, every two years. These awards are an opportunity for the winning projects to be seen widely, particularly in civic, business, and professional settings where the best qualities of Montgomery County are promoted. Some of the winners uh, are, I'm going to show here. Each year of the awards, a jury of nationally recognized independent architects, landscape architects, and developers are chosen to review and select the design excellence winner from the submissions that, that are submitted each time. The projects shown here are some of these, and this is the Universities of Shady Grove Biomedical and Engineering building, which is actually, it was a very beautiful building if you haven't had a chance to go see it. And you can see the comments of our jury here. Another gem within Montgomery County is the Glenstone Museum, which won an award in 2019. They, the jury also selects, in, in a lot of cases, um, Categories the planning department believes are important to highlight within the public. So some, we always have a design excellence award each time, but we also have additional categories to promote additional uh, elements. Additional categories have been great parks, excellence in residential design, and environmentally sustainable architecture. And here again is uh, the Glenstone Museum. Our first award winner in the first year that we did this in 2015 was the Silver Spring Civic Building, which is a beautiful building by Mikado Silvetti Architects out of Boston. And again, you can see some of the comments from the jury. So I'm showing you some of the winners to help also get you to the point and understand and promote this year we will be having our next Design Excellence Awards in, on October 19th here in uh, our Wheaton headquarters building. It's going to be a great event. Uh, we expect uh, this time around to have a, a, a tremendous amount of attendance uh, following the last time we had an event here uh, under the COVID protocols that we were following at the time. Um, 
submissions for the design excellence will be this summer uh, in late June, early July. And we hope to have a lot of uh, submissions once again. We will again be promoting an additional category which remains to be chosen other than just design excellence to help again. What we've found was in the past, a lot of the winners were more civic buildings, very big budgets, more dramatic type uh, architecture. And yet most of the architecture built in this county has to do with residential and mixed uses. And we, that's why we've tried to promote other categories uh, to help also show uh, the great designs that uh, we've had there. So that's my presentation on design excellence, and uh, certainly if there are any questions, I'm here. Thank you very much. Commissioner Hill, you have something? Yeah, Mr. Mortensen, I've always been struck when we get to architecture and design in Montgomery County that we really don't have a vernacular style in this area. And I think it's a very old problem. It's not new, right? It goes back to being the middle colony, right? right? Not north, not south. Um, and I just, I, I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, uh, Personally, and I think in, in practice, we, we believe that uh, style is not necessarily the quality that matters the most as far as architecture and a great public realm. It has more to do with the context and how you present uh, or, or frame the context of a great public realm, so the streets, the parks, and so on. And so I think that the, the, the notion of style is something that... Tr that you know, that the, the, the beauty of the architecture and the way that it frames these spaces transcends style in many ways. And so, yes, if someone comes in with a specific style, we will provide some critique uh, on, um, I guess, the success <laughs> of their design per the style that they're providing. But that is not the, typically the focus. The focus has more to do with how a building presents itself to the street how it helps to activate the areas that are around it, and how it fits within kind of the character and the massing and the quality of that neighborhood uh, which it's being placed. That, I think, is the most important uh, aspects of, of the design. Yeah, I'll, I'll just have two follow-up thoughts. One is I've kind of considered that we don't have a vernacular architecture as an opportunity, and it's certainly an opportunity to represent the diversity that is expressed in our, in our communities yep. um, that we're not trying to fit into a particular vernacular style. Mm -hmm. And I congratulate this process on that. And the second thing I'll just comment on is my 30 years or so dealing as a commissioner, I used to see um, projects that would have what were putatively public amenities that really weren't publicly accessible. And I think you guys have solved that fantastically. You mentioned the public realm and the access to that. You guys are doing a great job with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, um, I have a question. Uh, Kind of a comment or a question. Oh, is it Mr. off? Roberto? Oh, there. They're on. Can you hear me? Yep. No? Okay. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I really, uh, I, I, um, I think you've done a great job here, the planning department, in terms of the Design Excellence Awards. Um, I'd like to also raise kind of a, a different perspective um, in terms of, the, you know, when I hear about Design Excellence Awards, you kind of think of architecture, you kind of think of buildings, you think of, and, and in many ways, you, we know that the private sector is trying to uh, improve images of building. I mean, for them, it's, it's a big issue of reputation uh, of having a very nice architectural building. Um, I encourage you to also look at areas that in the county that need to be 
let's say, revitalize. Um, for example, I'm thinking, to what extent can we bring in, let's say, international, or not international, even local architects, competitions, to see how areas like Long Branch, Whedon, Glenmont, uh, New Hampshire Avenue, and University Avenue, uh, as you know, as part of the Thrive Montgomery 2050, mm -hmm. to what extent can we take neighborhoods, communities, and incorporate those into the um, what we call the design excellence? How can they be improved? That public space, uh, taking into account commerce, uh, housing, um, and you know, have a competition, uh, bring in you know three, four, five architects, uh, give them an award, and see how they can improve those areas as part of this um, design excellence. Um, you know, I always think, um, you know, this is kind of, a, it, it's a challenge, you know, and uh, it's a challenge to, to look at a particular area and see what can be done to improve its urban design. So that's kind of my, Second thought about that, because I, I think this, what you're doing is fantastic when you're looking at particular buildings yes. and areas around, let's say Bethesda, Chevy Chase, that is, and Silver Spring. But, you know, can we go beyond that in the county? Uh, Director Stern has you. some comments. Yeah. Sure, thank you. Um, I think that's a great idea. We can certainly look into that. Um, something else I wanted to note is that in addition to uh, buildings that are developed by the private sector, there's, all, there's also public buildings as well, mm -hmm. such as this building. Like this one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I was not involved in the design and all the plans for this building was already under construction when I joined the planning mm -hmm. department. But um, it very much uh, exemplifies the, the goal of this initiative, which is looking at all these opportunities to bring high quality design, including mm -hmm. to government buildings. We can have great buildings as well. This building is very much, to me, a landmark, you know, as oh, you're yeah. coming up Georgia Avenue. Um, and so related to that, you know, particularly in those communities that you've noted, when there are opportunities for um, either a new library or some other type of new facility, uh -huh. public facility, or a major renovation, those are always opportunities to, to um, infuse high quality design mm -hmm. um, into those projects. Uh, when I worked uh, in the, the government of the District of Columbia for a number of years, that is something that was a priority. Um, I remember a number of years ago with the uh, DC Public Libraries, they had a, their chief librarian a number of years ago uh, because they had several uh, public libraries that were being rebuilt, mm -hmm. and uh, they made an intentional decision to uh, to get, you know, nationally known, internationally known architects, um, in addition to uh, local talent, mm -hmm. to really elevate the design of those uh, buildings, including in communities that have uh, large numbers of black residents, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, particularly with civic buildings, when you can, uh, because that's something that the government can directly control. That's, you can you kind of create a new standard in those communities and you change the expectations of what other types of development in terms of the quality of the design. Um, so I just wanted to note that that's another opportunity that, that our department always you know, um, advocates for with our public sector uh, agencies here. Um, and it's something that we can certainly continue to focus on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for your presentation. We appreciate it. I think we're going to 
hear from you again with the Maryland graduate students coming yes. up. Yes, thank um, you very much. Okay, uh, that concludes the roundtable discussion. We're on to item six, Thrive Montgomery briefing. Uh, let me remind my commissioners, we're about to be briefed on what is now county policy, what is a completed approved document by the county council. Uh, it was approved by the council and then we as a group adopted it as a commission. So uh, this is so we all uh, have a base understanding of what it is since we implement it as we go. Uh, uh, Director Stern. I will just make a quick introduction before I turn it over um, to our Thrive team uh, to walk you through the uh, briefing. As um, Chair Zions noted, Thrive Montgomery 2050 is fully adopted, and this is now our new general plan for the county. It will and already has uh, influenced our future master plans, including the ones that we have underway <coughs> now that the board will be seeing very soon. Uh, it, is, it is and will influence uh, regulatory review of development projects. It is also intended to inform and influence uh, uh, facilities by public agencies, uh, public infrastructure. So it will be implemented through a wide variety of ways over the coming years. Um, and so we wanted uh, to make sure now that Thrive is adopted that the board has an understanding about Thrive, uh, what its major components and policies are. Um, because again, what you are have already started to see um, during your time on the board is influenced by the policies and Thrive. And so we thought that this was a good time uh, to give you that, that overview. So with that, I will turn it over uh, to our team. If, well, okay. We do have printed copies too, just so you know that. While the team is. I'll look at yours. No, we can, we can share it. I could provide some uh, very brief commentary while the team is uh, bringing up the presentation. Um, again, Thrive was adopted unanimously by the County Council in October, and it very much represents uh, a lot of best practices um, nationally in the planning field. Uh, I recall when I went to the um, American Planning Association's National Planning Conference uh, last year, um, and went to uh, a session that focused on uh, some recent comprehensive plans, which are the same as general plans in other jurisdictions. Uh, you know, we, we really are among the, the, the jurisdictions that have not just updated general plans, comprehensive plans, but really advancing best practices nationally within our profession. Um, and, you know, some of those ideas are, are things that there was a lot of debate and discussion over as uh, Thrive went through the public review process through the board and through the county council. Uh, but we feel that it's really critical to have a general plan that is very forward-looking and also innovative um, and looking at the, the issues and the opportunities that the county is dealing with now, but also those that we anticipate um, in the future. So with that, are you all ready to go? 
Well, I, I'll, I'll also say that, um, you know, the, the council was heavily involved in this uh, plan and uh, had lots of comments in the, in the process, uh, which is important so it makes it their document. Uh, yeah, since they are the, the main movers uh, of, of public policy, it's important that they have a good understanding, that they agree with what they're going forward with, and uh, they had a, a relatively heavy hand in, in uh, what was ultimately approved, which is a good thing. Yes, and we worked very closely with council staff throughout, throughout that entire process. And now that we have several new council members joining us, we're also going to you know, make sure that they have a solid understanding about Thrive as well. Right, and, and in fact, uh, you know, this council will be involved in implementation aspects is about everything we do goes toward implementation. I, I keep on saying that a definition of planning is a, uh, uh, a random step in a general direction. But as long as you know where that general direction is, you know where you're headed. Yes. Uh, so it, it, it's very helpful on orienting uh, all decision-making. We're almost ready. We're up to date. <laughs> we <laughs> the dates went away. <laughs> In this quiet moment, I, I want to pull just a, a sentence out of uh, the correspondence that was submitted to us because I thought it was a rather excellent description in one sentence. And that's simply, quote, the goal simply stated is desire to create an equitably prosperous and wholly healthy county. And that's Mr. Scott Plummer. And I, I thought that was a particularly good comment. Yes, and, it and is. We're penetrating to the public and they're understanding that we're, we're succeeding. Yes, yes. If we're going for great overall comments, I thought the one that said that Thrive is, is a, uh, a guidebook, not a roadmap. Uh, there will be plenty of individual decisions that go on to implement Thrive, and we just have to, again, know the orientation and the direction of where we're going, and that's where it'll help. We're ready? We're ready. All right, we're thriving. Okay. Great. Good morning for the record, Khalid Afzal with the director's office. And with me today uh, are Carrie McCarthy, uh, Division Chief, Research and Strategic Planning Division, and Maren Hale from the Mid-County Planning Division. And also we have team members from the team who are here to answer any questions that it might require a deeper knowledge of uh, some of the topic areas. <clears throat> While I was looking for setting up the Thrive, I know that um, um, Director Stern introduced some of the, talked about the introductory things, so I might be repeating some of this here again, but again, it's the update is to the general plan, is the last comprehensive plan was done in 1969. <clears throat> Just at clarification, when we say it was done in 69, in public, some people say, oh, you know, it's 50 years old planning framework. That's not the case. What happens is in the, you know, by state law and the county law, there's only one plan, general plan. And every other master plan, functional plan, everything else is an amendment to the general plan. So it's been updated, our general plan has been updated all along. It's just not been done in one comprehensive fashion or updated to do that. I mean, think of it as your window operating system. 
window operating system nine comes in, they, they send you update and patches and upgrades and everything. And when there are too many of them, after a few years, they say, okay, now it's window 10. It's the same thing that they combine all the previous patches and new things, but they put it together. So our planning framework has been update all, updated all along. Uh, again, it's a long-range long vision for the future of growth in the county. It does not change zoning in any neighborhood in the county as, as an overall big-picture policy document. This was a controversy that we went through a lot during the process, and we still say that, yes, it's meant to bring those changes. It's meant to create those zoning changes, but they will come after, after we start implementing some of the guidelines in the plan. This plan itself doesn't change anything. If you just take it and put it on the shelf, nothing will change. It has to be, it has to go through some of the steps for implementation for these things to occur and those changes to, to be brought uh, on the ground. Uh, I'm just gonna quickly go to the next one. Uh, uh, just an example of you how- You may also wanna mention that this is a 30, 25, 30 year kind of a long range exactly. plan. Yes. And like you're saying, it's not changing neighborhoods immediately. Absolutely. It's not creating higher density. It's not against cars or whatever. I mean, all these rumors that have been created around this plan, we need to get rid of them because yeah. this is more of a long-range plan. I just That's, wanted to call you it that. You will hear Thank you. some of the slides that part of our community outreach was dedicated to education, education, yeah. education. We were successful in some areas, not successful in others, but that was one of our focus that you'll hear more about. If uh, I can just add just really quickly, um, uh, just so, uh, to emphasize what you just noted, um, as Kali just mentioned, Thrive in and of itself is not a self-implementing plan. It has to be implemented by many different types of actions in the future, and many of those pretty much probably most if not all of those actions will require separate public review and decision-making processes, whether it's through master plans, future um, CTAs, uh, uh, capital budget requests, um, regulatory changes, those all have their own separate public review processes. And so again, Thrive, not to still, still Khalees under, but Thrive essentially, again, is laying out, a, it, it is a policy document and that is all it is. It sets the framework for those future actions to take place in order to, to actually implement um, those policies. But the public, the community, will have many, many opportunities to weigh in as those actual changes start to move forward um, through the either the board or the council or whichever entity is responsible for the decision making. And on this slide, there's, there's some examples of how general plan, at least in Montgomery County, because also how general plan and comprehensive plans work changes from different jurisdictions. Some jurisdictions have only one plan, which is a general plan or comprehensive plan. Howard County was one example until like five, six years ago, they only had one plan and they still do every 10 years on that art, they update their general plan and that's their more detailed county oil plan. In the last few years, they've started to have, I think there's one or two downtown plans they are starting to create small area plans. In Montgomery County, general plans have always been overall general uh, guiding document and then area master plans, uh, functional master plans have done that. Uh, on this here is example of, for example, the 1969 general plan um, had a recommendation about decrease affordable housing. It did not exactly spell out how it will be done. 
what mechanisms, what not. And the MPDU law was not even in anybody's mind at the time. Uh, in 1973, the MPDU law was created. And then again, this is an example of how general plan is implemented over many years, decades, not even knowing what will happen in the future and what things will come up. Uh, 69 plan had a recommendation about guiding timely infrastructure implementation. Uh, the way it was implemented that in 1973, the county's first adequate public facilities ordinance was created. And then a few years later, even after that, it took some time to create what we call growth policy to get into the more details of you know, school counting and traffic and everything else. Uh, same thing, there was a recommendation of protecting farmland. Ag Reserve was not created right away in 1964-69. Uh, the first TDR program, Transfer of Development Rights Program, even before they created the Ag Reserve, was tested in 1980 in only master plan. And when we saw that, yes, implementing, the next we created the overall what we call the Ag Reserve Master Plan. So it, it takes time for these things to, be, to gel and come together, especially it has to be flexible in order to respond to the future challenges and things and the conditions that come up. Uh, just to give you a hierarchy of how the planning framework works in Montgomery County, general plan is at the top. You're looking at, let's say, 3,000 view of the county. You're looking at the entire county. A lot of the details are not obvious. We can see here's Ag Reserve, here's downtown, here are other areas. Uh, functional plans, what we call master plans, look at entire county from one specific topic point of view or one large area. Uh, for example, the master plan of highways, bicycle master plan. Uh, functional master plans can look at a big part of the county from a specific area. For example, Ag Reserve can be a the whole uh, one-third of the counties in the RAG Reserve, that can be a functional master plan. And below that, you have area master plans and sector plans will go into more detail uh, of actually looking at buildings and sites and just setting out what kind of zoning will go where. And then and the next three um, boxes are actually the implementation of the general plan and master plan guidance through regulatory plans. So in the current framework, we start with sketch plan, preliminary plan, and site plan, and each one of them goes through subsequent detail, levels of detail. Sketch plan, just the developers or applicant comes to you and say, here are some broad layout of the site, not details about site plan. Preliminary plan sets out the lots and blocks and where the right, and the site plan, you can actually actually see which plant and which, 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 what kind of railing and what kind of, you know, all those details. So why create Thrive Montgomery 2050? Uh, we have identified a number of um, things that were happening when we started this, from demographic shifts to lifestyle changes. And on the right side, we have um, this population growth, which means that in the next 20 to 30 years, we have to accommodate about 200,000 more people in the county. Now again, not to say that we didn't have the framework already set or zoning or something that we will, without the general plan, we will not be able to do that. But we thought that because of all these shifts and changes happening and we have not looked at the overall county in a long time, it was a good idea to step back and step away from our day-to-day -day regulatory and master plans and schedules and take a big picture look to see what's happening, what's happening in the big picture, what's happening outside of us, what's happening in the economy and technology and shifts and how they impact our land use and how we grow. 
So that was the impetus for looking at it. And I'm glad we did that because at any point, it's always been a good question about should we do master plan update, general plan update or not? And there were arguments on both sides that you know we don't need to do that because we're already doing things. Uh, we have been ahead of more other jurisdictions. We have been doing mixed-use uh, neighborhoods a long time ago. We did transit-oriented development and central business districts starting in the, in the 70s and early 80s. But as you'll see as we go through the presentation, it did inform us in a lot of ways that it was a good idea to step back and look at the big picture. Um, and I'll just chime in here, Carrie McCarthy, for the record, um, Division Chief of Research and Strategic Projects. Um, Thrive was built on an um, extensive foundation of research that started several years before we even began the formal kickoff process for the plan. Um, the research team and other staff um, looked in depth to demographic trends, um, land use, real estate trends by product type. Um, I counted we did six studies related to housing. Um, and then the work also continued um, during the planning process. We looked at residential capacity. Um, the transportation team um, did a study, um, a kind of high-level study of different transportation scenarios. Um, so we really built this plan um, around a strong foundation of extensive research. Um, one thing we did not do to um, Khalid and Tanya's point that this is a policy document, we didn't do detailed scenario modeling like some other jurisdictions do for their comprehensive plan. We didn't do a parcel by parcel analysis and think about like what could change in the future. Um, but this was built on an extensive body of research about um, past um, trends and um, to inform what we think is going to happen going forward. Um, so from the very beginning of this process, we knew that Thrive Montgomery had to reflect the community values and priorities and represent a shared vision for the county. So a major element of the general plan process was a comprehensive engagement and outreach and communication strategy to gather the input of residents, business owners, nonprofits, other organizations, as well as experts within and outside of county government. Um, and Montgomery County or Montgomery Planning had never embarked on an outreach effort this large. Um, so it was it was new and it was a learning process. But we started by gathering information about the people uh, that we wanted, um, the people in the county who we wanted to better understand what they were concerned about, what they cared about, what they experienced, um, and where to reach them and how the, be the best ways to engage them were. While we did work to uh, reach everyone in the county, we paid, we paid special attention to certain populations, such as those who had to live longest with these decisions. As we mentioned, this is a 30-year document, um, so we provided special outreach to youth and millennial and Gen X um, uh, families, um, with families and without, um, and also target populations who had been historically uh, underrepresented or even excluded from the planning process, um, including uh, Latinos, African-Americans, foreign-born residents, renters, people with disabilities, and small businesses. Next slide. Can I just mention briefly, um, if you go up to the previous slide, if you look at the bottom uh, right corner, the um, entire, um, uh, I think it was a, the uh, public hearing draft of Thrive Montgomery 50 was translated into Spanish, the entire plan. So that's just... One example, there are a lot of other things that we did in terms of translating many materials, um, advertising the project and, and um, our kickoff in um, 
different publications that are targeted to different communities and different languages. So we really made an extensive effort to try to reach as many residents as we could. If I can, can I insert a question right here, which is right in the middle of what was probably your overall plan for public outreach, COVID happened. Right? Yes. And, and what real practical impact did that have? Yeah, um, and um, I will touch on that later, but I can say, you know, that was obviously um, more than a wrench in the process. We were um, beginning to start uh, or continue a lot of our large public engagement activities. We had them planned for May 2020. Um, and as you can imagine, these large inside gatherings did not happen. So we did take um, a hard pivot into um, virtual engagement. Um, I think one of the, the strengths was that we had already set a base for, um, for having some online engagement, such as uh, our website. We had an online questionnaire and um, like visioning tool that we were using. Um, but we did. We planned you know, um, uh, several very large online presentations. We had small chats. Um, as uh, Director Stern mentioned, we held, I think, at least three of them in Spanish. Um, so we were trying to be multilingual and responsive. We had one of our staff members who would come to the office and uh, set up a, a phone system so that people who did not have internet could still participate by dialing in um, on the phone. Um, so it was a challenge because I think at the same time we were all learning. But it also allowed us to reach a lot of people that typically can't come to some of our events and meetings and I think has set us up um, as you see the master plans that come before you, I'm sure you know, that there is an online engagement component that is stronger and, um, and more diverse and also evolving, um, partly because of the pandemic and also partly because of the work and the research that we did with Thrive. Um, and I would say the things that didn't change is that we continued to meet with our partners, um, although sometimes the questions and the emphasis did shift because people had other more pressing concerns. Um, but yes, I think it was a challenge, but it was a real opportunity and has allowed us to grow the tools that we have uh, in the planning department. And, and we also needed the public to come along, right? I imagine that was a, a gap that we couldn't address from the supply side from here, right? That people had to get comfortable with being online and doing that. Yeah, right? and I mean, I think that was something that we all were experiencing at the exact same time just in work. I was not used to working on teams, and now it's, it's second nature. Um, and I think, you know, that was trying out different methods. Um, and for some people, they were really, it was felt really natural. For others, it didn't. We tried some social events that were tied to also planning to make people more comfortable because we understood mm -hmm. this is awkward, you know? Like, let's, let's just be honest about it. Um, so we tried out a lot, and I think that some of it was more successful than others. But part of it was we were, we were trying out a number of different methods so that even if you weren't comfortable with one, you might be comfortable with another. And I think that that was really important um, to just keep trying those out. And then when, um, when there were loosened um, restrictions um, still during the pandemic, but you know, trying to figure out how we could connect with people after that as well. And I would Mr. add that. Penner, yes, I, I, I've been very impressed by the work that you've done. I know I've heard about all the outreach you've done with diverse communities, particularly uh, with the Spanish speaking community. And, um, you know, I, the fact that you've been working on this for more than two years, more than 200 meetings with the community, 
trying out whatever you can to bring people in. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I just want to make a comment. And it's not only the, the hearings that you've had and the meetings you've had, but, you know, the council also had meetings. Um, OLO did some studies. I mean, it, it, this is a major uh, effort that you guys have done, and I just, I'm, I'm very impressed. Thank you. And I would just add that in terms of your comment about, you know, how COVID changed that. Yes, we missed or, you know, lacked a lot of because of the personal contact that you have in meetings. But certainly we reached to more people. There were definitely more participation in Zoom meetings. Our, I mean, our individual meetings to the community centers and other places, always more people participated than I've seen in my 25, 30 years of doing plans here. Planning board public hearing, we got more people than we have in typical master plans. Council public hearing, two hearings, more than you would get anybody or any participation in that. Council listening sessions at uh, the five uh, community centers, way more than any other. Uh, Civic Alliance had a meeting. They never had this kind of attendance that they did through Zoom than in other meetings. And it, the other benefit was you also see some people who are sometimes shy in in-person meetings. They won't speak because of somebody's dominating or they see what's going on. Zoom gave them the, the opportunity, as I noticed, that more people spoke up and, you know, even their two cents, they would do that. So there were pluses and minuses on both sides. And I, in terms of getting feedback, I thought we got more feedback because of the Zoom meetings than doing personally having that interaction because it was difficult for people to come in. It's always difficult for a certain uh, part of the county population to come to these meetings, and they were able to participate by Zoom. Commissioner yeah. Branson. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate, you know, the extensiveness of the outreach. I'm wondering, you know, what is the after-action report? I mean, what did you learn from this that you will carry into whatever you do next, you know, I mean, from from all of uh, the planning boards need to communicate to wide segments of the population. Have you developed a sort of a uh, a plan <laughs> of 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 what this taught you and how you would carry that into everything else you do? So I can, I can start um, to respond to that. So we have uh, begun to pull that information together and to develop an equitable engagement guide um, that we will be um, completing soon. But I think we have already uh, reflected on what we've learned from that experience and have already started doing some new things or extending things that we saw worked well. So for example, with our master plans that are underway now, we have as part of our community engagement, both in-person and virtual meetings is basically standard practice. Um, because, you know, as, as um, the team noted, there are folks who can't come to community meetings or don't like to come to in-person community meetings. But if you offer a virtual option, whether they're on camera or, you know, we take feedback through chats as well from comments, um, you know, there are residents that that option works better for them. And so that is something that we have, that we just do a standard practice now. 
Um, obviously, even with the planning board, we operate these as, as hybrid meetings because, again, it offers an, uh, an easier way for more people to participate. We've also, um, you know, looked at other ways to reach uh, our more diverse communities. So, for example, we've been doing uh, canvassing uh, to reach residents who live in multifamily buildings because sometimes it's hard to, you know, you can't just knock on everybody's door. That way, uh, we've started to track data on the residents that we have reached through those methods so that we can uh, compare that to the demographics of a particular plan area and to see are we reaching uh, representation of the, the residents who live in that area. So I think those are just some initial you know, things that we've already been doing um, just over the last year um, or almost a year you know, at this point since we've transitioned to more you know, in-person in, um, operations. And I don't know if the team wants to add anything else. I would love to add um, just to Director Stern's comments. Um, you know, that some of these things are being codified in that um, equitable engagement strategy document. Um, but as you can see with some of the plans that are going to come before you, plug for the plan, my plan that's coming next week, you know, you'll see that some of the ways that, uh, that we've incorporated what we learn. And I think a lot of it is also, um, one thing I was going to talk about is, you know, the, the strategy of just going out into the community and not asking people to come to us, offering that, but not saying you have to come to the, our meeting at our you know, uh, at this location at this time, but going to festivals, going to community events, going to community partners events, and also working really closely with organizations that are strong in the community um, and partnering with them so that, you know, we are attending the events that they're already having and that we're building that relationship with the organization, um, the trust with the community. And I think that you'll see more and more of that through the master plans. Um, I think that also the amount of translation and interpretation that we have um, has continued to maintain and grow since uh, Thrive. That was something that we really championed during uh, the Thrive community engagement process, and that's something you know, now that we are translating materials regularly into several languages, that we are having meetings that are um, bilingual um, or that offer interpretation. Um, so I think that those are just a few of the ways. Um, and I think that one, uh, one thing is also figuring out how to uh, share back what we've heard so that people uh, can see exactly what they said and see that we've heard it. And that's something that we've always done as a planning part department, but we're working on you know, how to make that even stronger. Let me, um, uh, I'm glad that you all translate uh, most things, if not everything, into Spanish. I hope that you also are considering French and Amharic. Um, yes, we already do that. Okay. And, um, and, and let me just suggest, I don't know, you know, because, you know, I think a, a part of what happens is um, that silos get created um, unconsciously, right? I mean, nobody wants to be, um, uh, segregated off, but sometimes that's just kind of how we think about things. Um, so, you know, in the, you know, a lot of people just don't have Wi-Fi. You know, they don't, they don't have an internet connection. They, you know, they don't, um, but, but they may have a library near them that does. I mean, so, so I guess what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that, you know, as you consider the hybrid meetings, you, you also consider places where maybe people can gather um, who don't have internet because sometimes people need to be able to you know not only to to view the thing that's going on to be a part of the thing but to to do it in community mm -hmm. you know b because you know I, 
you know, uh, if 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 someone who knows nothing about this stuff is sitting at home watching it on Zoom meeting, they're not going to get too much out of it. You know, but if they're at the school or the library or the church basement or whatever, you know, that's that's another way to expand and to give people an opportunity, you know, to to be um, connected, even if they can't get to whatever place, you know, the the meeting, uh, the main meeting is happening. That's just a, a thought. No, I think that's a really helpful um, suggestion, and I think that again, you know, that is something that we're trying to do with, especially with our partner organizations. I know we're having smaller uh, virtual or hybrid meetings that are, you know, have the partner organization hosting some of the folks so that they can be in community, um, but allow it to reach um, a greater uh, a greater population as well. Um, Lee, do you want to go to the okay, next what, slide? What I would quickly add to this one is that. It's in some ways the community outreach and having interaction and getting feedback, not just master plans, needs a much bigger analysis countywide, not just our processes, because we are doing everything as Marna has told you. To I mean, almost every master plan creates its own challenges, and we you know try to create. It's an evolving process, but there's still something lacking in my view of what we have seen through general plan, working with big picture. For example, we, we need some institutional structure countywide to come up with some support structure also for the communities to support them so that we have, we, we grow some leadership in the communities. It's hard for them to come to one meeting, let alone, like you said, be able to understand because sometimes this is complex stuff. Uh, growth policy, you can't just come to one meeting and start talking about it. You need to grow the leadership in the community and support that. Uh, the county structure of the five community boards is 50 years old, 40 years old. It was created when county was 300,000 people. Now we have 1.2 million. You will see from here in your meetings, it's, it's a very complex county. We are not the same. We need to look at this feedback and community involvement, however you call it, whether it's empowering the community, however, whatever term you use, at some point, we need to look at this structure and review it and look at other, how other jurisdictions are doing. There are different methods, different ways of doing that. I believe that we need to look at that big picture. Uh, we have an internal working group in the department called Peer Review Equity Group. I'm part of that. We look at all the master plans that are coming to the um, staff is working on and bring to the board. We look at that purely from equity and community participation point of view, and again and again the same issues come up that we're running into that at least our group is coming to the point that they need to be addressed at a higher level, at a different level, again stepping back and taking a comprehensive look about what are the different components of community involvement, getting feedback, giving back to the community. So I think at some point we'll bring it to you when we are ready to have some kind of framework for that. You know, let me suggest that um, that one way, <laughs> you know, because, you know, the danger of only a couple people understanding stuff is that then they become your jury. <laughs> and if you don't convince that member of the jury, then you are dead in the water. Um, so, you know, and, and, and the way you address that, I think, is through... Um, um, accessible education opportunities, you know, so like, you know, uh, 
um, planning, university, you know, you, you all can run that on your website. You could partner with MC. I mean, it could be just a, a free tutorial overview, uh, big picture stuff. So, so that people um, have a, um, you know, a grasp of at least the basics. Um, because really, um, the way um, misinformation becomes, uh, 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 the way misinformation becomes what some people believe is common knowledge <laughs> is that you only have a few people speaking and those people appear to be knowledgeable. They may not, in fact, know, um, you know, their elbow from any other part, but um, but 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 they have the the aura of expertise. Um, so you know, l let me um, let me suggest that to you that you all put something on your website that's kind of like planning 101. Um, that that will give people some kind of overview and that's easily accessible. That's a great suggestion. We actually, um, even as we were developing Thrive and some of its draft recommendations, that the idea of some type of planning university, so to speak, is something that has come up and, and sort of grappling with how can we provide um, education on sort of planning in general. And part of the part of the challenge is that this is it's not a one time thing that you can do because there's always new people moving into communities or changing um, changing where they live. Um, different, you know, leaders come and go in communities, um, but figure out a way uh, to do that so that the information is easily accessible at any time. And I think that that's something that we can certainly consider. Uh, we've certainly been doing a lot more videos um, and making those available on our website. So that's something I think we can we can look into. So I just wanted to note we still have a lot to get through. This has been a really rich yeah, conversation. Yeah. So. So maybe uh, we can have the team uh, continue because yeah. there's a lot to still cover. Uh, and how about getting to the content of the plan? Yeah, yes. I think I can probably uh, uh, skip uh, most of the yes, presentation since please. we've chatted about that. But I just do want to mention that, you know, I think um, having accessible ways of talking about things, talking about like what do you want to see for your kids or your grandkids, you know, what keeps you up at night and having conversations in that way to understanding the planning nitty gritty is important for some people and other people say, I don't have the time, but I still want my voice to be heard in terms of my values. So kind of figuring out ways that people can have the, the five minute uh, engagement activity and the lifelong engagement activity. And also saying that neither one nor the other is necessarily more valuable, that we need to value those who can give a little bit of time and those who want to give a lot of time um, and recognize that was an important part of it. Um, Khalid, you can just go to the next one. Um, so you can see some of the ways that we asked questions or tried to, um, you know, to provoke content. it. And then, um, um, and then the biggest piece is once we got all this feedback, it was incorporating it into the plan so that people saw their values and ideas and concerns in the goals and um, policies of, of the plan. And I think I can turn it over since we covered most of it, but if you are more interested in, um, the outreach and engagement efforts, I would suggest looking at the Thrive website, there is an outreach appendix that goes through both the strategy and most of the activities that we did as part of Thrive. I think we've also talked about this slide, so I'm gonna miss because we, a lot of stuff that happened both at planning board level and the county council and Fed committee level. 
Um, this is an important slide. I want to try to take a little bit of time, and we can. I'll, I'll give you some time back on the individual chapters because this is where the whole thing is uh, is guiding post were set. Early on in the process, before even getting into nitty gritty of what we are doing and community, you know, involvement or even announcing the plan, we did an internal exercise. We hired a consultant to to go through um, some exercise talk to some experts in the county, in the planning field, in the business community, in the educational community. For example, the vice chancellor of the Shady Groves, University of Shady Groves was part of this team. We talked to uh, uh, county department heads, ex-planning board members, ex-council members. We wanted to get our arms around it to say, you know, it, general plan can be a lot of things. It's so many topics and everything. So we wanted to create some guideposts, call it guideposts, call it you know, major outcomes that we want to have so that our discussion is more focused and guided so that we are not running out, out towards every other issue that's mentioned. You know, when we started this EV, electric vehicles was such a big thing, sorry, autonomous vehicle. You couldn't go to a conference without hearing about autonomous vehicle. You would think that that's the general plan should address that. But we stepped back and we hired a consultant to do a whole process about six months, six to eight months, to define what should be core principles, core outcomes of the plan. And we went through this exercise, you know, we considered transportation or housing or other issues, but those are all issues or the ways to get to the issue. So we came up with these three outcomes, core values, whatever you call it, that economic health, community equity, and environmental resilience. Now we call them differently, we call them economic competitiveness, uh, racial justice and social justice and racial equity and environmental sustainability and environmental resilience. That's how they're titling the plan. But the same idea that these are the three things that are constant, that will be constant going forward, and we should always keep them in mind, whether we are developing some recommendations, whether we are looking at some issues. And how it's done in the plan is that you, if you read the plan, every recommendation has a little small colored box next to it. Uh, EQ for equity, ENV for environment, and uh, um, um, equity for, so that, that at least it gives indication that that's the main purpose or that's what recommendation is chiefly to drive. Sometimes it's, each recommendation is more than one dot. It gives one dot or two dots or three dots, so you can see that. And the other idea here is that there has to be some balance between these three things. We can't just be gung-ho about economic competitiveness and forget that, that economic prosperity has to be distributed and shared by everybody. So that's where equity comes in. We also look at environment, that we cannot destroy our environment just running after one goal. And how that balance will come in in the plan is that every chapter of the plan and the concluding chapter has some what we call indicators, how we measure our progress that some of them, and that's not a comprehensive final list. This is just Thrive as a guide just suggests that we look at that. And there can be others that we can add in the future if we want to. Our individual master plans can do that. But looking at those indicators will give us some sense of are we reaching our equity goal? And there's no numeric goal. These things are just big guideposts without having any, you know, 10% this or 20% that or not. This is just ideas that we have to keep in mind that these are the three big things we're always striving for. 
So, so that was what we call three planning framework. that you're talking about, they're going to have indicators? Each one has indicators, like a matrix? Uh, or indicators sort of are spread or throughout the plan. Okay. There, there are indicators yeah. in each chapter in Thrive. Oh. Okay. So, so these are sort of this. These three objectives are sort of the overarching the overall. sort of umbrella. Okay. Yeah, but and then, then the indicators are separate. Right, okay. right. Yeah, Thank and you. most of the indicators you will see are trying to assess these things. You know, they the are environment things. related, community. -related. I mean, there might be some that are process related or something, but majority yeah. of them are real oriented towards these three things. Can I make a suggestion um, just to make sure that we can? Um, get to the get to the content. Um, maybe uh, these next few slides up through um, complete communities, we can get get through these very quickly so that we can yeah. jump into each of the chapters. Yeah. Uh, again, here is the organization of the plan, and there's a logic to it that we are putting it here. Those three things: economic competitiveness, racial equity, and environment are the top three things. Those are the first three called chapters in the plan. After that, the next three chapters, compact growth, complete communities, and design arts and culture are the next big picture ideas or themes that run throughout the plan and you know how we grow and how we look at growth. And after that, transportation, housing for all, and parks and recreation are how you actually implement those things that we talked about in the previous chapters. And that conclusion talks about what the implementation is all about. So there is a certain logic to the, the way it's organized and what's contained in each chapter. Um, and also, economic competitiveness um, recognizes that we want to build on the county's strengths, but we don't necessarily know. Um, we want to be flexible to a variety of economic futures. Um, it also recognizes that economic competitiveness is very important, but planning, we only have control over um, land use, public infrastructure, real estate, you know, we're not the business attraction agency. Um, so we, the goal of the chapter lays out some principles for economic growth and ideas to support it, um, but also works in partnership of, you know, MCDC is the lead economic agency. Um, and it's worth noting, even in the MCDC's most recent, recent economic strategic plan, they identify um, the development of complete, livable, high-quality communities, um, making Montgomery County a great place to live is a, a key component of economic competitiveness. Next slide. Um, the racial equity and social justice chapter um, recognizes that a history um, of segregation in the county um, and a, a legacy of systematic racism has led to disparate outcomes, um, and that planning um, in the county should prioritize um, devoting resources to areas of concentrated poverty um, and considering um, racial equity and social justice going forward so that we um, provide access and opportunity for all residents. Next slide. Um, and then the environmental health and resilience chapter, um, you know, recognizes a high level. It's important to maintain our environmental assets. Um, this chapter also, an important part of this plan is, um, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. It was very interesting doing a general plan for a county this large and this diverse in terms of land uses um, because we need to balance, um, you know, different environmental issues in different parts of the county. So um, there's a lot of focus in the environment chapter on preserving the ag reserve, but allowing access for the public, um, using parks and recreation to preserve large tracts of land, um, but again, supporting um, you know, new models of park use that encourages recreation, activity, socialization, 
Um, and also from the built environment standpoint, recognizing um, redevelopment and infill development is our future in the developed areas of the county and making sure that we have policies that do that um, in an environmentally sustainable way. Next slide. Um, and an important component of the plan is recognizing that you know, climate change is the environmental issue of our time. Um, and a lot of the impacts of climate change um, you know, come from factors outside of our control, outside of, of county, national, and global factors. Um, so doing what we can as a land use agency um, to encourage compact planning um, that mitigates emissions, um, and then also coordinating closely with the climate action plan um, that was developed a couple of years ago, um, and we, we do extension, extensive work in coordination with that group. So these three chapters that Carrie just talked about set up the overall context and what the plan is about and what's the approach and how we look at it for growth, the issues and everything. Uh, they don't have any specific policy bulleted recommendations. The next six chapters, starting with compact growth, that's where the actual bulleted recommendations are along with the, you know, the proposal of what it is about. So the compact growth chapter lays out, again, big picture, how, what's the approach? How should we look at growth in the future? And the compact growth is an idea that runs throughout the chapter, throughout the plan, that no matter what we do, we don't have land the way we did 40 years ago. So we have to be more compact. We have to be more efficient about it. And a lot of things that grow from that idea of compact growth in this one about land use, the overall land use, big picture. Um, in simple terms, it's the opposite of sprawl. So if you think about how to do it, every time you think about compact growth, it's not just for downtowns, it's not just for you know, high density areas, it can be anywhere. It can be in Damascus Town Center, it can be in Only, it can be Ashton, it can be Wheaton. Um, uh, this is an important uh, map um, in the plan that talks about how we how we got where we are. Uh, on the upper left-hand side is the 1964 general plan kind of depiction. Then we have 93, and on the right-hand side is what's what's what we call the proposed growth plan for Thai Montgomery 2050. And this is a blow-up of that plan. So basically, what it does is it creates three tiers of growth. Um, the top one. I'm just pointing to what's the text on this. Um, rural, uh, rural areas and ag reserve is the northern and outer one third of the county. Uh, very little growth, no specific growth, so to speak, to be directed. It's meant to grow naturally on its own for the needs of the population that's there, that's already has the ability to grow, a few more houses, other things, agri uh, the agriculture might change. Um, the next one, points to right to the core of, you see the lightest color, um, corridor-focused growth area. That's where the most of the growth for the future is to be directed. And again, I would point out that this is not, Thrive is not a wholesale change or, uh, you know, a shift of any direction. We have been doing that for a long time. It just fine-tunes some of these ideas, puts them into big picture perspective, and give it context so we don't have to fight them and keep telling them from master plan to master plan. It is bringing what we have been doing and looking to the future to put it these things. So the core area where all the infrastructure is, where all the transportation is, where all the density is, where all the jobs are, that's where the idea is that majority of the growth, again, no number, it's not 90%, 95%, or 80%. We just say majority of the growth should be directed there. Uh, 
the last arrow, the two areas on either side, those are suburban areas. Again, some natural growth will happen. Uh, you will see the next slide, complete communities idea, uh, what's needed to make these communities more walkable, more livable. Some changes might be needed, will be there, but it's not, again, the major growth area. As I mentioned, if you take the boundaries of those three growth areas, put them on our existing zoning map, again, it's nothing new, it's just uh, clarifying, it crystallizes where we should be focusing our growth on. And all those areas pretty much follow generally the outlines of the existing zoning boundaries. And these boundaries are not specific, you, you know, they, they're just generally ideas. Exact outline of these boundaries when they touch these properties will be defined in individual master plans going forward. Just a note, I, I, I um, welcome uh, Commissioner Presley to our meeting. She's online. C keep going. Uh, the next chapter is, again, going from the complex, uh, complex growth about what's the purpose of that growth is to, we are trying to create complete communities. Complete communities idea is that we provide as many services and facilities and people close to their jobs and where they need to go. And uh, if you see on the previous, this map, on the right-hand side, there's a list of what we call activity centers, uh, from large centers to medium to small. Again, to give some idea, it's not that this list is comprehensive and finite. Um, and also, it's not exactly defined as to, you know, yes, large center is going to have so many employees versus medium center, no. It's just an idea that you look at it, the way they are identified, you'll get some pictures of which ones are grouped as where. Also, there is a consideration of future in here. We have, we have put only and Burtonsville in the same medium, I guess they're medium size. The idea is not, we're just not taking exactly what's there today, we are also looking at the future. Burtonsville may not be there, but Burtonsville, we are saying, can be something like Olney, town center area. So it, there are different ways to look at it. It's, it's like where we are today and where we want to be in the future. And those ideas will be further defined in the master plans. Uh, complete communities, uh, again, as I said, the, the idea Sorry. behind that is also uh, what's called 15-minute walk. Doesn't mean that every place in the, you know, everybody will be 15-minute walk, but create as many places as we can where you're not dependent upon car, you have, you have the ability to have more interaction with people, and just keep that concept in mind as we are looking at master plans or, or plans to say, can we make these complete, complete our commu communities more complete, more walkable, more accessible, both from equity point of view, from economic point of view, from environmental impacts point of view. Uh, next comes to, again, complete communities and how they can be a different scale from rural to urban, uh, different uses, different heights. Uh, design, again, goes to the next level of looking at from how these things are put together on the ground from block level to uh, how the buildings are arranged, uh, how the, the things that you heard from Paul about what's, what are the mechanisms of putting it together and why design is important. Uh, this is just one example of how design has created and infill development has actually improved in sight from both from walkability point of view, from environmental point of view, even though our density and more development is generally thought as, you know, creating more problem, but here's a solution that, you know, we can use uh, innovative design approaches to improve the existing conditions. 
And this is a that was a good example of what Paul spoke of earlier about how it's not just about the design of an individual building; it's about the the larger context and how we can all um, add up to a, a great uh, context or community. Uh, next thing, design chapter also talks about that you know there's a compatibility issue, and we have never defined it in a in a certain way that it's always becomes uh, controversial. But there's a scale from you know, on the left-hand side to very small building all the way up to high-rises, and it has to be, uh, again, in the context of where the buildings are placed, you know, going back to the chapters of complete communities and design excellence chapter, that there, there has to be some definition of comp uh, compatibility that we all accept. So it's not debated on every, every project and every chapter. The developers would know what compatibility means. The communities should know what compatibility means and that will help in creating what we call the complete communities, compact communities, and better places. Uh, transportation, again, I'm not gonna go into detail. A lot of this is covered. The emphasis in transportation is, again, connectivity and transit, because clearly we cannot, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, that the chapter talks about where we are and we cannot just build our way out of you know, building streets or something. Uh, we have to change our land use. We cannot just change transportation. Land use has to be able to be able to support transit. Transit has to support land use, putting our you know um, jobs and accessibility and everything together. This chapter also talks about connectivity in terms of uh, broadband access and computerized access and, and what we talked about um, Zoom and everything. And there are communities in the county where they don't have, or there are populations that don't have that kind of uh, facility that. We should be looking at that and looking at ways to address those issues. Um, and I'll just add to the transportation point, a, a key departure from past plans um, is balancing modes of transit. Um, the older general plans prioritized auto above all else. Um, and a key concept in Thrive is, no, we need to consider transit. We need to consider walking. We need to consider bicycling um, at that level um, in the appropriate land use concept um, to give people more options, to encourage the public to use, um, to provide them access to um, environmentally sustainable modes of transit, um, not just be reliant on automobiles. Um, so that's a key change. Um, housing, 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 more housing, more housing types, more housing affordability levels. Um, housing was a key focus of this plan. Um, you know, we have long-term challenges in this county of household spending um, more than 30% of their income um, and being cost burdened. Um, and housing affordability um, impacts many other quality of life factors, um, including equi economic health, equity, education, um, access to jobs and other opportunities. Um, housing is an essential element to economic competitiveness and environmental sustainability, um, as well as social justice and racial equity. Um, and you'll see with these three chapters, um, you know, the issues in the general plan were so interrelated. Um, we took a lot of care, and it was a lot of work to kind of figure out um, where and how to address these um, interrelated issues. Um, and sort of housing, that point about housing addressed relating to equity, relating to economy, relating to the environment um, addresses that. One of our early slides in the various roadshows about the plan, we had this you know spaghetti map of showing all the ways the different issues were related and, and where we should put certain things. Um, and so Thrive really emphasizes producing more housing of every kind. Next slide. And, and housing quickly is um, one of the most complicated and important issues in the plan. 
but this turned out to be the most misunderstood part of the plan, just to give you some sense of what kind of feedback we are getting. We're still getting that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, as you know, housing um, production the past few years has not met um, the needs of the population. Um, next slide. Um, and to address this, Thrive has a, a wide range of housing policies that encourage more production, um, plan for a wider range of housing types and sizes, um, and promote racial and economic diversity and equity in housing in every neighborhood. Um, and I know this afternoon you have a, a briefing by um, from housing planner Lisa Gavoni on the affordable housing policies the county has now. So, next slide. Um, lastly, um, parks and recreation. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, um, this chapter um, balances parks as a mode to preserve open spaces, but also recognizes parks are really important um, in building community in the county and encouraging recreation, um, encouraging public health by providing places for people um, to play and exercise. Um, and then, next slide. Um, also, in the increasingly urbanized county, um, you know, parks can, are really important as neighborhood centerpieces um, for access to open space um, and the uh, activities I just mentioned. Next slide. Um, now the conclusion. Um, the conclusion chapter um, is really an implementation chapter. Um, it talks about um, how um, the implementation of the plan's recommendations will require cooperation among the public and private sectors over the next 30 years. Um, and, you know, and as has been mentioned several times, we will use um, existing tools um, for master plans, zoning, other regulatory codes, um, the growth management policy, the CIP, um, and private development to implement the recommendations. And then as we go, we may need to develop new tools. Um, next slide. Um, and then there's a lot of you know, focus on you know, how will we know if we're making progress. Um, Six of the chapters in the plan have um, metrics at the end, um, and then there are also some general metrics um, um, in the conclusion chapter to consider. Um, and we have a project, you know, in our work program, um, thinking about, you know, what do the general plan metrics mean? How do we track them in a meaningful way? Um, so we will, um, you know, at the, you know, it's not something we're going to update every year because, like, you don't see change that quickly in a county, particularly for a plan this high level. Um, but we're thinking about sort of what's meaningful reporting um, to, for ourselves to monitor how we're doing and provide that feedback to the community so um, everyone can be aware, you know, what progress we're making on these very important goals for the county. And this is just the acknowledgement of the staff, the team leaders who have been involved with this. But before I do that, I would also say that we also created a document called Actions Document, which is separate, not part of the approved plan, which has more detailed actions, more detailed than the policy recommendations of the plan, to give the public sense, some sense of how implementation will take of different kind of actions. What does that mean? For example, create a you know, climate action plan has already been, was done at the same time. Create a climate action plan. Do this more specific. Uh, for you know, um, create um, guidelines for something like that, or look at th these other things. That action uh, document has not been reviewed by the council. Uh, the council, when they, uh, when they were approving this plan, said that that should be reviewed separately. Uh, again, that action list is not a comprehensive final list. That's just to give some idea. That this is how the plan will be implemented through these plans. 
some of the actions plan, uh, action things are already being done. For example, climate action plan is already underway. It's been approved. And the climate action plan is generating some CIP and other things. I am um, part of the county work group, which is looking at flood management in the county going forward, which is going to be a huge issue given that changing rate, rain patterns and infill development is a multi-year study. They're also looking at some other changes, uh, exploring how other parts of the climate action plan can be implemented. Uh, and there are different things that are already underway by different agencies. So that's just to give you an idea that there is a compendium document that we will look for the council to see how they want to, how or when they want to go through that. And that will give at least the public a little more idea of what kind of actions will be. And those actions will define our and the county's work program going forward in the near future years. If I could just add some additional clarification regarding the actions appendix. My recollection when, um, when the, the draft plan was transmitted to the county council, there was an intentional decision to make the, the actions appendix separate from the document that is formally adopted, which is what you have in front of you. Uh, but we did note that the actions appendix has been a part of Thrive in, in all of its you know, public iterations. Um, and it is still a resource for us that uh, serves as a uh, sort of a list of ideas that we already have to inform our future work program for our department and ideas that other agencies uh, could also you know, implement over the coming years. And so that's really how we intend to use it. It doesn't require council adoption, um, but it is still you know, a publicly accessible way for us to capture all of those project ideas um, so that we didn't lose those while we were just focusing on the policy. So you will see some of these projects, you know, coming up in, in, the, in the future. Or our successors will see that. Your successors, or I would say the, 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 the collective you, the community, uh, will see those. And um, that's it. Okay. Can I just, um, just to close out, uh, maybe Khalid, if you can go back to the previous slide. Uh, these are the names of the different, uh, we had as you can see, multiple internal working groups. We did not, um, uh, besides the consultant that we hired um, as part of the pre-planning to help us develop those three core priorities, this project was done completely in-house, essentially. Uh, this was a department-wide effort um, that required the participation of a lot of our staff, as well as Montgomery Parks, uh, who was very involved um, in a number of our working groups. And so I just wanted to take this opportunity uh, to thank all of our staff who participated um, in developing Thrive and getting it to the finish line. Uh, definitely all the, the team leaders for our uh, working groups, uh, but particularly the core team for Thrive, uh, Carrie, Khalid, Marin, Bridget, um, as well as our former director, Gwen Wright, and myself. We have been, I was added to this project as soon as I started working for the department back in uh, 2018. And so this has been something that we've been living with for quite some time. And um, again, just wanted to acknowledge the, the amazing expertise and hard work and dedication of the planning department staff to get this to the council by the deadline that they gave us, which was April of 2021, which meant that when we were talking earlier about, early about the impact of the COVID pandemic on our community engagement, we had to continue working on this. So I remember doing a lot of my work you know, in my home office, reviewing drafts of policies and going through that whole process. We were doing that at the same time. Um, but 
you know, we, we completed this when the council asked us to complete it, we turned it over to them and then they went through their process. But I just wanted to, you know, publicly acknowledge that this was a department-wide effort and I'm very, very proud of our staff. I could not list all the names because there, at some point there were about 60 people involved. At some point I looked at in, in different stages of the planning. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you for the presentation. I think everybody has increased their understanding. And Mr. Hill has something to say. Yeah, um, this is at the end. I just want to connect two pieces of work that we've handled lately. Um, you know, we've, we looked at, I think it was State Bill 10423 recently about splitting up Montgomery County and Prince George's County. And it struck me when I was reading this that in this plan, we address that. All right, and I'll just read a quick quote. It's on page five. It says, we need to think about Montgomery County as part of a larger region and find ways to work more effectively with other area governments on policies and projects that will help make us all stronger. And I, that really jumped off the page at me when I was, uh, when that thought about connecting these things together is that's, that's the argument, right, for why we shouldn't be splitting up MNCPPC. I also have a comment. Um, I like to echo the words of the planning director, I think you've done a tremendous job. Um, two years, more than 200 meetings, I'm very impressed. But you know, on the other hand, I see this as a way of guiding or let's say influencing development. We also have to think that this is kind of a, um, a process that is happening no matter what. And I see it in terms of the changes in attitudes and preference of people. I see it in my children. I see it in seniors. My children, they don't want to have a, they want to use Uber and they want to live in an urban environment. As we're becoming more and more urban, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that we're creating compact communities that people want to look at alternative ways of transportation, uh, because of congestion, whatever. I mean, you guys have picked up through your 200 plus meetings what is out there. You know, how people feel about how they want this county to change. And I just want to say that, you know, people who don't understand, it, it's, it's, re, it's, it's changes in culture of young professionals, seniors, everybody around us. This is what we want. And you've reflected that in this document. So I congratulate you. Thank you. Thank you. I think that concludes this item. And we'll uh, proceed to uh, uh, item five. Do we need to break? for? The yes, we do need to.
good morning. Welcome to a continuation of the January 12th meeting of the Montgomery County Planning Board. Uh, we are on item five, which is a Silver Spring design presentation by the University of Met Maryland Graduate Studio. Um, uh, Mr. Mortensen will guide us through uh, to uh, and then introduce uh, our guests. Great, thank you very much. Um, as we talked about this morning, uh, an element of our previous presentation on design excellence is education. How uh, Now and then we have presentations to the board and to staff to foster discussion and to help to create a better understanding about design and design theory. This is one of those informative and academic presentations. Architecture design not only provides technical drawings used for construction, um, but they also can provide authentic images that can give meaning to hopes and ambitions of our society and our communities in which we live. This past fall, as part of the closing plenary for the Makeover Montgomery Five, and I don't know if you have the, this presentation up right now that I have on my screen, but um, we hired three nationally uh, recognized firms, uh, architecture firms, to create futuristic vision for the Silver Spring metro area. It was presented in the plenary, uh, the closing plenary discussion. The three firms were Shalom Baranis Associates out of Washington, D.C., uh, uh, FX Collaborative out of New York, and Perkins Eastman out of Washington, D.C., which uh, Matt Bell uh, works for. These drawings were not intended for implementation, but rather we wanted these visions to inspire and to stimulate public and private discussion on how we should use the public investment of transit in future city uh, building. These drawings and presentations sparked a great deal of discussion and thought, and they became the catalyst uh, for the work uh, of this fall semester graduate design studio that you're going to be seeing here in a second from the University of Maryland. The past uh, semester at the University of Maryland's graduate urban design studio followed up with and expanded upon the work that the national firms had produced, except in this case, the students took the entire downtown core of Silver Spring. They were a little more ambitious. In a single semester's time, they evaluated the entire downtown, researched the physical and environmental constraints, studied historic and urban and regional urban design and architectural precedent, and developed academic and theoretical plans for specific areas within downtown Silver Spring from which development, social equity, and environmental resiliency might thrive. Matt Bell, Matthew Bell is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. He is a leader in design and urban design practice and theory at the university. He is also a member of the Historic Preservation Review Board in Washington, D.C., and he is a principal at Perkins Eastman in Washington, D.C. Joining him today also is Professor Georgian Matthews, who also uh, teaches at, in, at the university and is part of this great effort. And you also see several of the students that were part of the class. I had the pleasure of serving on one of the student reviews this past fall, and I know from that that their work was quite outstanding, especially done in such a short period of time. Matt will present their work and talk about the importance uh, of the thriving, focused, and walkable public realm 
and then we will open it up for a little bit of discussion if you wish. I look forward to the presentation and uh, I hope you do as well. So Matt, why don't you take it from there? Uh, good morning, everyone. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Good morning. <laughs> That's better, okay. Uh, it's really nice to be here and show you this work. I'm joined, as Paul said, by my colleague, George A. Matthews. And um, we had uh, 18 students this semester. Um, 13 of them decided to watch online and the rest are here with us. Let me introduce them. Miguel, Judy, Leah, Austin, and Samanti. And they really produced some terrific work, which I think, you know, over the course of time um, at the university, um, you know, we do take on problems of local significance. And the idea is not necessarily to propose a solution, but to expand ways of seeing it, to expand ways of thinking about it. And a lot of what you all just listened to in terms of the Thrive presentation about livable, walkable, mixed use, downtowns, housing equity, open spaces and things like that is very much in line with what we teach at the University of Maryland. So we look at these sort of opportunities as ways to um, advance broader thinking in, in the region for the university to be of use to the local municipalities and to engage and have a lot of back and forth. And Paul's been a tremendous resource for us. Gwen Wright was a good resource, but previous she helped set this whole thing up. There, um, Tanya has supported us as well here um, from Park and Planning, and we've also received support uh, for the studio from uh, the National Center for Smart Growth, who I think probably a lot of you know about, and also from uh, the Dean's Office at the University of Maryland. So uh, what the students do is they do a semester of urban design before they do their thesis. Uh, Georgianne and I are presenting this morning because most of them are involved with getting ready for their thesis projects, and, and they're also doing competitions and other things, so we thought, well, we'll do the presentation. They can add color commentary as we go along, but they're all really busy, and actually I'm really happy that several of them took time out of what I know is a very busy time of year for them. You think it's, you think it's break in January, it's actually not. They're actually all working, busy, doing a lot of things. So um, they'll be able to provide commentary. Um, and so what we want to walk you through is just a preamble of some reasons why this <clears throat> particular site is important. Paul mentioned we were part of the, uh, the vision of Makeover Montgomery um, in, in September. Our office did a scheme for Silver Spring. I don't know, I have pictures of it later if you want to look at that. Um, we took a certain point of view as did the other firms. But really what we're here to show this morning is, is uh, the ideas the students came up with. And what this cover slide is, is six travel posters. I am a, a particular fan of those old 1920s posters, you know, visit Paris or see, see London and stuff. But they always had a way of communicating the sort of sense of place of those places. And even though they were done for tourists, you know, locals love places that have great senses of place as well. So as the students evolve their projects, what we ask them to do is we ask them to come up with a poster that represents the big ideas of their scheme. And, and so it's not simply an exercise of making an urban plan, it's also telling a narrative and a story about a place. Now, Georgianne and I have come to the conclusion that the Silver Spring site is probably one of the most important opportunities in the region. There, um, the purple line is going to be there soon, the red line's already there, tons of buses are going in and out of there now. There is development around it, but obviously it's not coordinated. It's not, there's no place there yet. There's no sense of place. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that as we go along. So if I get this right, Paul. Okay, so we'll talk about the, uh, the site a little bit. Um, equity is an important issue with urban design. If you do urban design right, it provides a level of equity for everybody in the community, and that's critically important that everybody feels that public space and public places is for all. 
And that's something I think we emphasize. Some lessons from history about that, and then we'll walk through the schemes. Um, this is the area, you all know this uh, perhaps better than, than we do. Uh, the red line came many years ago, the purple line's on its way. What is critically important to understand is that this is a, a 10 minute walk is a very good pedestrian shed for transit, right? So what, you know, you couldn't even fit it all on the slide here. I couldn't do it all on the slide. But what's, what's nice about this is that um, lots of different housing and neighborhoods can walk to these metro stations, which means that the public places and streets and public um, uh, plazas and things really ought to help get people there. In other words, if it's not a nice walk, they're not going to walk. If it's a night, Americans will walk, by the way. People say, well, Americans will walk. It's actually not true. Americans don't walk because we've created some pretty miserable public environments. You know, who wants to walk across parking lots and things like that to go to um, a transit? But if it's a nice walk, people will walk for miles. And so I think part of the idea here is to almost make that, finish that gap. The downtown and Ellsworth and things like that has come along nicely. But that gap between the rest of Silver Spring and the transit is not there yet. It, it really needs to become something much, much nicer. And that will increase the number of people who ride our transit and walk around in our community. But we think this is a critically important site. Um, you all know the pictures. This is it under construction there. Um, my understanding is that very little of the sort of urban design staff of park and planning was involved in this. So it is very, it's very much a transit structure. It's a structure that speaks about transit, and it's very efficient in that way, but it's certainly, if we're, when we're engaging sort of urban design professionals in it, perhaps we might have done things a little bit differently than how it turned out. But um, it is not a pretty thing to look at. It's got buses in it and a lot of concrete and people walking around. It's not somewhere you would go to hang out um, if you didn't have to ride transit which is untrue of a lot of transit places, by the way. A lot of transit places. Rockefeller Center, which I'll talk about, has three, two New York City subway lines that cross it. But we might still go there if we're not even riding the subway. So it's very important that these places have a quality of design that is something that entices people to be there, even if they're not using the transit resources. So there's the big crossover there to the transit station under construction. The other thing I will say, and we'll touch upon this as we go along, um, you all, uh, the county owns several big parking structures in this area, um, which I have never seen full. I've never seen them half full. I don't know who's, you know, people obviously are parking in it, but there are a lot of people who are not parking in these structures. The fact that this is publicly owned land as well as the land near the station suggests to us that this is really ripe for a public-private kind of partnership to develop this. This is land that could be leveraged in a very significant way to make something, you know, one plus one is three here. So I think that ought to seriously be looked at. There's obviously some small one and two story buildings in front of the parking decks, which I think probably are not something we would put there today if we were planning this from scratch. And also we're seeing a change in the office market. And some of the office buildings that are in this area may be converted to residential or may not even be there in the future. You know, COVID has really changed the way we work. So understanding that and the opportunities associated with that's very important. But we all know the site and we know uh, what it looks like. Uh, spend a few words about equity and urban design. Um, this is something we passionately believe in, that good urban design is something that needs to be available to everybody. Um, what is interesting about the, the way in which the market works today is everybody is part of a market segment. And actually, developers understand this very well. 
they build housing types, either apartment buildings or single-family houses, for very specific demographics, right? They build them for you know the young couple or the young family or the empty nesters or the seniors. And what our housing market tends to do is maximize the efficiency of these products. These people specialize in these things. They want to be able to build as many of their type as they can because that's an efficient way to do it. It's the responsibility of our planners, public planners, and you folks like the planning commissions everywhere to be able to push back on that a little bit and say, no, no, what we want is a community that has a mix of these things so that people of different walks of life and different economic backgrounds can live near next to each other. And that makes a better, stronger community. But what happens when that doesn't happen is you get a kind of monoculture. And we've seen that in places in the county, um, to be sure. Um, but we have some tremendous opportunities not to do that um, in, in general uh, with new development. But we, you know, we know that there are isolated senior living complexes and single family developments and things. And when they don't get mixed together, um, it becomes a problem. Of course, this was a little bit of a manifestation of the fact that America transformed after World War II into a production economy. We built airplanes and tanks and jeeps. Well, what happened? That turned into building houses and mobile homes and all sorts of industries of tremendous scale. So there is an issue there with, with how we begin to sort of make all these things work together. And so these are just some examples of, of the sort of, and, and our housing, you know, we say we need more housing. Housing industry knows how to build at scale. They know how to build, you know, things of, of tremendous uh, volumes. What is interesting historically, if you think about the great cities, and now we have a few examples of this, is that they've always been able to have a kind of mix of typologies in neighborhoods. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we like them when we go visit them. So, for example, in London, and we think places like Silver Spring could learn great lessons from this sort of thing. Places like London, you have very large row houses on the bottom, and then you have very small ones in the smaller streets behind. But they occupy the same public space, in a sense. People can still all use the streets and blocks and things nearby. Uh, Venice is the same way. In orange are the big palaces along the, um, along the uh, uh, Grand Canal there. And in blue is sort of multifamily buildings uh, uh, um, interspersed within all those blocks. If you look more closely at a neighborhood in Venice, you can see it. The big courtyards of the palatial you know, family uh, palaces there. But then you can see really small skinny blocks on the right in the blue. That's where all the workers lived. And they lived right next to each other and shared the same public spaces. And even you look a little closer, right next to each other, there's a multifamily building there, very, very efficient, couple of rooms per apartment there. And then there's a large uh, Venetian palace right next door. This is a pattern that repeats itself in many, many different ways. But they all have the same access to the public straight spaces. In Venice, it was water, you know, <laughs> and some streets. But uh, there's that famous, uh, who was the famous New York Times reporter who arrived in Venice and he cabled back to his home office in New York, said, streets filled with water, send instructions. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, um, you know, you look at New York. <clears throat> the avenues tend to have the taller apartment buildings and the cross streets have the row houses. And these things have different demographic profiles of the people living in. Paris was an interesting example after it was uh, remade in the 19th century. Um, with the Haussmann um, interventions in Paris where the apartment building emerged. And what happened there was a, instead of a horizontal integration of these things, it happened vertically. The big apartments were one floor up. This is before elevators. And then as you got up into the upper levels, that's where the income levels tended to um, be more modest. And you can see there's a bit of a dramatization 
of all sorts of scenes happening in this apartment building and a lot of people being asked for rent and water leaking in and whatnot. But it still has that same pattern today. So what could Silver Spring become, sort of understanding? And some of the work that we did in the studio was we always look at precedents, places that exist. We learn from places that exist. We try not to invent things that have never existed. We try and apply the lessons of places we know and love and we know work and, and see how they could become useful to us. So we, look, we looked at things, and this is a few of the things we looked at this uh, semester. We went to New York and looked at the High Line, and there's some applications of that, we think, in Silver Spring. <clears throat> we looked at civic spaces like the Capitoline Hill in Rome, there with its great statue of Marcus Aurelius in the center. We looked at park systems like the Emerald Necklace in Boston, which is one of the great park systems in the world. And we looked at one of my favorites, Rockefeller Center, which is actually quite small, not very big at all. And you'll see some very direct applications of that with what, we're, what the students came up with. Um, you know, and, and sort of reaching back to some of the other examples, public space comes in a lot of different ways, right? The, and, but the important thing is the accessibility to it. Everybody has access to it, whether it's Hyde Park or Central Park. Those are well-loved spaces that don't have, you know, sort of gates that check people as they go in. People can go in and use them. But even things like the small neighborhood Piazza or Campo Santa Maria Formosa in Venice, that's a place where the neighborhood gathers. Or just the corner cafe there. These public realm things are very important to the quality of life of our cities. All right, so changing tunes a little bit here. So we looked a little bit. This is a kind of an outline. This is not the limits of the area we looked at, but this is just a kind of scale comparison to give you an idea. I think you all recognize the site. You can see the transit center there on Colesville Road and Georgia Avenue. What I've outlined there is about 7.3 acres. Just one take on what could be a public-private location. Doesn't mean it's going to be that, but included in that are some uh, parking decks, are the parking decks and things like that. What's interesting to note is that that's 7.3 acres in Paris. So this is, if you've been to Paris around the Place Odeon, it has a public theater, it has several streets and blocks, it has apartment buildings and things, and that's just the tip of, the tip of what's possible here. So sort of scale comparisons like that are always very important. So why does all this matter? Because we believe it does matter, and I'm sure you do too. Um, this is a graphic I like to use. Uh, the University of California, Berkeley, has a very interesting site called Cool Climate. And what they do is map um, the, the tons of uh, CO2 produced per household. And red is bad and green is good here in this slide. And what do you see? You see that the cities are actually, per household, producing a lot less CO2 into the atmosphere, which is very important. And they also, you can drill this down into zip codes. So here's Silver Spring. This is zip code 20910. Here and you can see the on the upper right is the the, um, the sort of range there of total household carbon um, um, produced footprint per year, and you can see here that Silver Spring already is doing pretty well. And our sense about it is that because of that, it should be reinforced. What that means is people aren't driving as much in Silver Spring. They're walking to places. There are more amenities in the city in the in the community, and they have more things at their fingertips. So. It's important because what we're doing is building for these people, our future generation. We have to continue to reinforce settlement patterns that already are performing well. And I think that's the ethos of the studio that we were, we were pursuing. 
So at this point, um, turn it over to George Ann. She'll start describing some of the schemes, and I'll jump in with some too, and we can walk you through some of the ideas, main ideas of the students. Okay? And you guys, if there are things we're leaving out, you know, they're usually not very shy to tell me when I forget stuff. So if there's stuff, you know, that we're leaving out, just jump in there. But they can also engage in the dialogue at the end. I would like to hear their work. Huh? I would like to hear their work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. Okay. Turn your mic on. All right. Mic is on. I'll do this. Okay. Um, as Matt indicated, we encourage the students to be quite visionary with um, what downtown Silver Spring could become. We had them do travel posters. Um, there were six groups of three, and the first one is Silver Tower Plaza. So do you want to click on that? Um, Silver Tower Plaza, clearly the, the idea here is to have a, a special place that is um, an amenity where people gather, but it has this sort of iconographic landmark. Um, which Silver Spring may or may not have. We love the Discovery Building, but this adds to that. Next slide. Okay. Um, students looked at um, existing buildings. The darkened buildings represent new infrastructure. And here you can see sort of that central plaza in the center of the slide, um, which creates this sort of cross-axis looking over Colesville Road. But it's really this beautiful, wonderful space, um, much like Rockefeller Center, which is a precedent that students reviewed. Next slide. Okay, um, we had students do something called an illustrative plan. An illustrative plan takes this sort of very banal drawing to the left and turns it into kind of a pedestrian experience. And so you can see these sort of green boulevards that move um, from the uh, central business district area where the movie theater is across Colesville Road and then into that lovely park and it becomes a place where people can rest while viewing the purple line um, train coming through as well as the Red Line Metro. She also mentioned too here that the Blairs, they also looked at the Blairs mm -hmm. too as a redevelopment project, suburban shopping mall, you know, obviously a good candidate. So you can see at the bottom of there is some courtyard housing there that they're proposing. Absolutely. And so this scheme with this new heart, honestly, it's a new central um, space in Silver Spring. As a native of Silver Spring, the idea of placemaking where we can gather. I have teenage children, so I can honestly envision them kind of hanging out in this spot and identifying with it. Um, the metro being the place where kids actually go and use um, to get themselves into and out of Washington, D.C. And so this represents... Um, uh, a use and a strategy of dealing with the changing section within downtown Silver Spring. So there's quite a steep slope. And so this group decided to create plazas and terraces. And so that kind of maximizes four or five different spaces within this larger plaza. Next slide. Okay. Um, this is a places diagram. This is really important because it talks about moving um, from one distinctive area near the Civic um, Center um, that has a, a focus and a sense of place and creating that pedestrian promenade that Matt was talking about. And so if you can actually give people a 10-minute walk that has a sense of place, a sense of journey, and you're moving from one spot to the next, people are going to come. People are going to hang out. People are going to use the metro and enjoy themselves while they're doing it. And so there's Civic Plaza, Silver Town Plaza, um, the central sort of heart uh, Blair Gardens, which we talked about, kind of activating residential space, which is important, and giving um, those towers and residential moments their own um, special places. Next slide. Okay. Um, again, here we're talking about um, sort of overlaying the idea of a successful plaza like Rockefeller Center on that heart in um, 
uh, downtown Silver Spring um, and showing basically the square footage or the amount of acreage that it takes to create a public space, and it's not very large. Um, we took the students to Rockefeller Center, and they realized you come up out of the uh, train station in New York City, and you're in this wonderful space. And uh, the kids can tell you that it's three blocks by three blocks. It's a very intimate space. And it's in red on this drawing. That's actually the dimensions of actual Rockefeller Center. So you could, Silver Spring could have one. You could order that right up. All right, next slide. Um, and it, here, an investigation of uses. So as the colors change in these extruded volumes that are the buildings, you talk about the, the uh, types of um, uses, whether it's retail or whether it's more residential, um, framing these spaces and kind of uh, changing the nature and character of that pedestrian experience as you move into the bus turnaround, the metro, and through into the residential Blair Plaza. Okay. So the next scheme is called Wayne Public Garden. <clears throat> it's really about one really terrific public space. <clears throat> you can see on the left in black is their intervention here. And you can see the sort of very long space um, from the transit out to Georgia Avenue. And you can see the interventions in the other areas. The big idea of this scheme was really to create a long space that brings the presence of the transit center out to Georgia Avenue. So um, this is a. Uh, the group made this fascinating little video to show the activation zones, to show some of the public spaces where they occur, and then also where retail might be located. And the idea is really to bring the presence of the transit site out to Georgia Avenue by this long space. We could look at this all day long, but we're not going to, but it's kind of fun, clever way to do it. What is really key here is, is this is the nexus of um, the intersection of these three different areas, the downtown project, the, uh, the, the uh, area along the old plan of Georgia Avenue labeled diversity district there, and then Wayne Public Gardens. And it's really trying to bring that nexus together. There's an important place where you understand Silver Spring and they all have sort of residents in these areas and all these different places come together within that, that very small walkable area. Um, you get a sense here of the, the uh, the, the massing of the buildings with the tallest building right at the train station here. And so their interventions are in blue here. And then this is a view in that space. So, you know, you can see here the uh, view to the high rise at the end, which is the blue and gray tower. And then what's important is the, um, the space is made with retail on either side. So it's an active space, but also a garden space that people can hang out in. Even if they're not shopping or taking transit, it becomes a place people can go to and enjoy. Um, this is an illustrative. Um, we, always try, we always try and get people to draw illustrative plans uh, because they have, architecture students don't like to put trees in plans, but we do make them. Trees are important to American cities. They tend to draw all trees the same way, so we try to work on that a little bit. These guys have heard me about this before. Anyhow, but we try and make it illustrative to give a sense of what that public environment is like. Um, and then this group drew a section of that showing, you know, what the park width might be like and how much sidewalk you get and whatnot. And I think it's akin to the Sherlington Village, if you've ever been over there, that has a kind of a little park in the center or something like that, I think is what, what this thing would be um, experienced like. What is interesting, though, in flattening the site here, you end up, because of the topography, you end up with a lower level. You make a flat, you take the grade of Georgia Avenue straight to the transit center, 
you end up with a lot of grade underneath. And they thought, well, that's where we could have buses move around. We could add more parking. There are ways to make that usable. And we think that that might be something uh, to consider. This group also did a bunch of before and after pictures. The most significant, you know, and it's a little bit hard to tell that these are really before and afters, but you get a sense of what the public space might be like. And they made a little amphitheater you can see here that sort of is the thing that is right up against the train track. So you come out and you're standing on this. This is right as you come off the purple line, and it could be a concert venue, but it's also a place that gets people down into the plaza. So you can mix pub transit and public placemaking like that. You can imagine you could have a concert there and people wouldn't even ride transit. You know, they just come and see a concert because it's a place that the grade could work. And then the buses could all be navigated at the lower level. Okay. You want to do this one? Um, why don't you do this one? Okay. The, the next one here is the trail yard, um, which is really about a long space in a trail. Again, also bringing the presence of the, of the uh, station out to Georgia Avenue here, and a sort of walkway um, that navigates the level change between the two but connects the station and the, uh, and the area. You can see that long space here to connect to Ellsworth here, which is really important connection um, in Silver Spring down to the downtown area. It's somewhat akin to Mount Vernon Place in Baltimore, long space with green gardens in the center. We think that was a, a useful precedent here uh, for the students, and you can see the pathway outlined in sort of orange there on the left. Um, and then they made sort of a, a places like the park system in Boston we were talking about earlier using the sort of different places to show where this places diagram to show where these different public places might occur. And this is a view of that walkway. What's interesting about this group is, again, the topography is very steep there. So they made a virtue of it by having the walkway be a beautiful pedestrian bridge and then a nice stair up from the lower level street to get back and forth from these different levels where the transit is located. So it navigates this change in topography quite nicely. They're massing here. They did a nice job of integrating mixed uses, showing sites for hotels, retail, um, residential, hospitality uses. Really, one of the things I think is important for the future here is to get as many different uses in there as possible. You know, get people living, working, going for entertainment, whatever, in and around the train station. And they also took sustainability into consideration with vegetated roofs, uh, green roofs, with um, also ideas about how you could collect stormwater to use for irrigation or recirculation could even, I suppose, do geothermal pumps under the buildings, really looking at serious ways that this could be a model for develop, model development. And a little bit more about that, showing how the topography works in the, the treatment areas. OK. Go ahead. OK, high-low connection. Um, this is a really beautiful travel poster indicating the quality of the space, looking at the purple line. Um, next slide. Uh, and in this illustrative diagram, if you look at the center of the slide, um, this is a pretty successful strategy in that you actually have a series of three plazas that step up, one from Colesville Road, then to the center, and then up to Wayne Avenue, um, with the main focus point being this high point plaza. And then you've got that extruded element in the center. That was that um, building that is a cafe. And so the idea is that this plaza becomes a place of entertainment, hangout, um, kids can fly kites there, et cetera. Uh, and then it has that wonderful staircase um, that the cursor is pointing at so that you can look down um, into the plaza and access Colesville Road. Slide. 
This places diagram um, really shows this group's attempt to give each one of these neighborhoods a heart, um, with High Point Plaza being the most significant. Um, next slide. Okay, and then with this massing strategy, again, you can see the multiple uses that we encourage, um, such that you have an integration of retail, um, office space, um, uh, amenities um, with the focal point being High Point Plaza. And from that plaza, the main, um, the main amenity, honestly, is the purple line. Uh, again, an analysis of precedence. You have the Spanish Steps, which is wonderful and glorious. We take our students there. Why can't we have the Spanish Steps in Silver Spring um, as a place to access the High Point Plaza, to sit, to see and be seen, and enjoy the cafe? Or even Paris, which is it could be a smaller version of that. But you know, there are level changes there. But we'll have to be navigated pretty pretty seriously. Okay, and here's that perspective. They did a really fantastic job of imbuing this space with this kind of energy where you can see um, just with a series of steps and an extruded volume that is the cafe, it's really um, tremendous placemaking. Um, you can come and watch the train, you can come and hang out, you can come and grab a bite to eat, um, but that's the kind of place that a transportation hub can be. And here's a view from below, um, moving up towards the, that center plaza, again with the stairs just from a different view, flanked by retail um, and a place for people to hang out and play. Next slide. Um, this is just really an understanding of if you make good amenities, if you make good public space, what you put on the outsides, you know, doesn't really matter. You decide what the program of the buildings is going to be, but the emphasis becomes um, the public promenade, the terracing series of steps um, linking the two um, plazas. Okay, um, shadow study. This group actually took a real long, hard look at what it's like to be outside in the summer, um, in the winter time, where winds are going to come from, um, as a study to how to activate the space <coughs> and to keep it active through various months of the year. Next. Okay, um, circulation. Again, you can see the circulation all centers around High Point Plaza with views to Purple Line um, being the anchor of that space, and then circulation uh, along Ellsworth to the main um, sort of retail center of Silver Spring currently. And I think you have two authors. I should have pointed this out. Miguel and Leah were authors of this one, and the first one we showed, Judy, was one of the team members for that. So I think they can tell us what we got wrong in a few minutes here. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> next to last was what's called uh, Purple Plaza, um, which <laughs> good alliteration there, I suppose. Um, and the, really the idea here was to make really a great plaza. Um, and so this is their places diagram, and you can see the purple line here, and the plaza is here. Interestingly, um, this group said, well, we don't think the station is great to look at, so we're going to shift the plaza away from the station so that we create our own environment. We don't have to look at all this concrete, and we can put buildings in front of that. But we can still have it in quite close proximity to the station, which is where you want to be. So they also found out that with the topographic change here and all the sloping, they could have a beautifully terraced um, public space and maybe a location here that you'll see pictures of for an important memorial or monument there. So we could actually have something that's important to the history of the county located there as a kind of focal point to the plaza. They made one of the really nicest interventions down here at the Blairs, making a plaza here that connects across to a sort of another green space 
there and all sorts of new development that could occur in that location. And then you can see the way they're trying to connect to this center with all their different streets. So this gives you a sense in black in the center of what their intervention was here and how they sort of, um, you know, a little bit of urban design in Silver Spring here is a little bit of urban teeth capping. You know, you're trying to make the smile better. Um, and then you can see their diagram here of the existing and then the clarification that their diagram makes about the order of the public space, that it's much easier to understand, much more legible in terms of a series of relationships of public spaces to streets and whatnot. And then here is their 3D. There's the sort of memorial monument placed in the center. They are a place for a very large development on one side and then infill um, on the other side of the, there's discovery right here and then infill on the other side of that. Here, this is their illustrative that gives you a sense of this terraced garden here in the center. Um, and then here you can see the, the way the level changes and what they decided to do was to keep the level of the plaza flat so it allowed for a very large gathering interior space. Here you could have things, you know, maybe ice skating or other things that could occur there. You could have maybe dueling ice skating teams with the ice skating from uh, Veterans Plaza in here, something like that. But nonetheless, it, it allows for really a unique idea of public space. And you can see the purple line goes, uh, this is the actual location where it will be. It'll move through that space, and that will animate it as well. You can see here it could be a place for a Christmas tree, like Rock Center. Um, never have enough of those things around during the holidays. And then this is a sense of what that space might be like, that, that sort of big room, very eye-catching, some of the new development on either side of it here. And then the, you can see it faintly behind, but you can see the purple line trains passing by. So, and sometimes, you know, you probably have all been in cities where it's kind of fun to watch the tram go by, actually. It, it sound is kind of simple as that, but a lot of places you just sort of, it's fun to be and just see what's happening around you. Okay, the last group here, uh, Georgian will explain, but two of the authors are to my left, Austin and Samanti. So. Fantastic. And the spina, very much like it sounds, is the spine. Um, this travel poster sort of shows the shifting levels um, um, as the spine moves through downtown Silver Spring. And the next slide will give us an idea of what that's like. This is very comprehensive in creating what is a sectional shift in pedestrian experience, not unlike the High Line in New York City. So there are moments where you're level and at grade and then uh, walking on sort of a catwalk and then descending and ascending. Um, and it moved uh, the pedestrian through four full blocks with a sort of anchored promenade. Next slide. Okay. Um, building use and building heights, indicating the changing typologies and the mixed-use um, environment we want to create so that there are lots of different experiences people who live in Silver Spring can have along the spine, whether it's retail, residential, office. Next slide. And then this section is um, incredible challenge, but the students sort of labeled each part of the promenade. So there's a, a specific sort of feeling and place as you move through. And again, um, some is at street level, some is higher. Um, there are these sort of platforms that you can inhabit. And the idea was to help pedestrians kind of navigate getting across the train tracks and between neighborhoods. And so a lot of work spent modeling and understanding how to do that. Okay. Um, and here is a full illustrative plan uh, to the left explaining that promenade um, all the way from um, uh, Ellsworth uh, across Georgia Avenue through the central space. And then actually with this spine, the spine goes through the bus turnaround and over the metro tracks and into the Blair's neighborhood 
um, really, really kind of extraordinary work. One of the things that the access from the southern side of the metro station is not very nice. And how many of you people have had the pleasure of walking along the coastal road access there? It's spooky and scary. So we thought, well, why not make more access? And this group came up with a way to do that. Very high. <laughs> very high, yes. Uh, here's a placemaking diagram um, showing that promenade, um, sort of the edge condition of the buildings, framing that space, moving through the Fillmore into the center hard, across the track, and then finally down to High Park Plaza. Next slide. Okay. Um, and then perspectively indicating what those places could feel like, um, especially the central plaza. Um, which is a continuum of the pedestrian green experience, but it really does culminate um, in this wonderful spot where you can overlook the transit center. Next slide. Okay, and then here's a perspective. The students actually did these perspectives themselves. What can you do when you change elevation, when you change from one level plaza to another? You can have this series of fountains. You can have this series of green spaces that changes and morphs, you know, as you move along the promenade. Always activated with, you know, public walkways. Uh, bikers can experience it. And so it's fairly comprehensive in um, creating uh, an ultimate experience even beyond just a simple plaza. Next slide. Then here's one of these elevated moments. I don't know how many of you have been to the High Line or even to some of the places in Washington, D.C., along our metro rail. So why can't we have that in Silver Spring, um, where you can activate these elevated spaces and be a part of the transit experience and then look out over the plaza below? Okay. And then this is sort of the final experience um, when you reach High Park Plaza, where we can imagine the grocery store still being there and further retail, but that this is a residential enclave. So this is the neighborhood when people are kind of um, hanging out and going to bed at night, it's 10 o'clock, um, low-key, family-oriented environment with this final pool that receives the water at the end of the high outline. Okay. Um, this section sort of explains that, and uh, it was fascinating to understand really how hilly Silver Spring can be, and the students had to navigate quite a difficult challenge, um, and that shows the extended um, experience from one end to the other. And that is the end. And so I know we've got students here who are probably anxious to share their thoughts. Um, we were observers, and they really did much of the work. And we do have, uh, Paul will get a copy of this that he can send around. We have a report that mm -hmm. the group has done that has all six of the projects in it. So you can use that and peruse that. Some of the analysis we did up front and hopefully guide the county a little bit in some of our creative thinking. And that's the cover of the report. And that I know, I know, Samanti and and Judy and another uh, student, G. He have worked hard on putting the report together. So that's that's ninety nine point nine percent done. Professor Bell found one little editorial thing we need to fix, but we'll we'll have that for you very shortly. So that's what we've been doing. Very cool. I, uh, just to give you a little perspective, I was involved in the Silver Spring plans before Metro got there in nineteen seventy three. Wow. So uh, Metro actually, I think, opened in 76 there. Um, and there was a lot of discussion on whether to have an elevated system of walkways or pathways or, or retail to overcome the, what, what you've all found, which was there's topography. Uh, interesting thing how it invades all of your thinking. Um, and, and when, once the metro train tracks were, 
were established, which was going to be where the B&O line was anyhow, that established all elevations thereafter. Um, but it gets pretty high once you have to meet the clearances. What, what struck me in all of the routines is nobody developed over the metro station itself, <clears throat> where it was, it was, uh, it was uh, built so that the piers could support a building on top. Do you guys of want to address that? But yeah, go ahead, Austin. Thank um, so our SPINA projects, um, we should have touched on a little bit, but we're proposing a platform above the red line uh, because, as Professor Bell said, the experience getting off the red line, when I visit my friends here, it's always kind of a hassle to get the red line and, you know, navigate all that. So on top of that existing uh, red line station, we're proposing a new platform that is connected to the elevated walkway so that way when people get off on the red line or the mark train, instead of going down onto Colesville, they can go up onto the platform onto the Spina, which leads directly to downtown, the Fillmore area, and then our high park area as well, yeah. Um, so you looked at the clearance you needed over a railroad track? We did, it's the same height as the elevated like mark train thing, so it should work. <laughs> Anybody else wanna, what, other groups weigh in on that at all? It's okay, I mean, it, we did look at it. It's, I have a particular prejudice. I think the priority really needs to be the area on the north side of the station um, building over the metro is a high price proposition there. I think you got to build the value first with the other stuff before you even start to think about that. So I, you know, they, they, I think what they came to was the idea of creating more access to the station from the south. I, I would point out just as a skill that we just experienced is salesmanship is really important, right? Because you have to have the vision and you have to put it together, but then you got to sell people on it. And, um, yeah, work on that. <laughs> but uh, for those who ended up on at grade for, with your proposals, which means you need steps, uh, or it's a bit, very big slope going up to uh, Colesville in, in Georgia, did you consider the alternative? Did you consider elevating to, to create the level space? You know, we, we, we have one level space uh, uh, people and we have step people. I just wonder if you considered the opposite. Yeah, there, um, there's nobody from this scheme here. They're probably watching online. This scheme actually makes the grade straight from Georgia flat to the station, which means underground you could have more parking and buses and other kinds of infrastructure down there. This is one of the only schemes intended to kind of make the grade straight from Georgia there. And there are opportunities and challenges that come with that there. But, you know, you, you mentioned level changes. I'm give Miguel and Leah a chance to just sort of, because they've wrestled with this in this scheme here. Um, give Miguel and Leah a chance to sort of talk a little bit about this. Um, this was there. The best diagram, I think, is this which, that one there. Do you guys want to? Um, I think for us, we want oh, to. Turn oh, your you got to push your mic. I think for us, we wanted to really preserve. And, and get closer to your mic. I think for us, we really wanted to preserve the existing bus lanes. We felt like if you're going to spend that much money on this transit center, why would we cover it up? Um, so we worked our best to embrace them. Um, instead of covering the transit center as well, we wanted to sort of almost celebrate it and have our design um, make it better. Yeah, to add to what Leah said, by the way, my name is Miguel. 
um, is that we wanted to create the processional experience uh, all throughout. So <clears throat> not only not only do we play the t with the topography just to make it work, but also in the in-between space, um, we make it so that there are opportunities for shopping experiences, for gathering spaces, uh, just to make the whole site an interactive experience, not just point one and point two. Did, did anybody look at limitations on the demand for retail space uh, as you're trying to provide it everywhere? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the, ch the challenge, look, that's a very astute question because you know, you've obviously um, experienced, as we all have, the change in retail with COVID. L look at our, the side of our building I that know. provides and, for and retail. So we're not quite sure where the world's going in that regard. I think one of the things that I think we talked about is having active ground level uses, whether they're retail or anything else, like if it's a residential building, you put the fitness center down there, or you could put daycare and things in the ground level. It is a challenge going forward for downtowns, how you make these act ground levels active and things. Um, we didn't talk about that, you know, all that much. We probably mentioned it a little bit, but obviously moving forward, that's something a place like Silver Spring has to get its arms around, um, you know. I mean, my office is downtown at Thomas Circle, and there's not a lot of people walking around. You know, a lot of people are still working from home and things like that, and all the delivery stuff that has changed and whatnot. It is a changing world, and we do need to figure that out. And speak, you, you hit upon something else in our changing world, which was, was just how to get energy in an urban environment. And you went to, uh, somebody went to uh, ground level thermal, or, um, uh, do you know the topography of Silver Spring? Do you know that we call the people who dig big basements miners because of the rock that they have to get out? And whether whether your that proposal will work with rock? Um, we didn't get into implementation. <laughs> I mean, They're not engineers. I would say that and you guys weigh in as well. You know the the. My prejudice in all of this that I sort of state fairly openly is the first act in sustainability is building to reinforce successful settlement patterns and places where there are is already settlement and resources like transit and schools and open spaces and things like that. If you can get to the next level, which is things like geothermal and all those sorts of things, great. You know, but in the end, if you could build communities where people can live without having to move around two tons of metal to get a quart of milk, then you've achieved something already, you know. Director Stern, I think. Well, oh, uh, Commissioner I'm Branson sorry, had I'm a question. Sorry. I didn't look um, the other way. Um, so I'm wondering, when I, when I look at, at the, um, the presentation, the slide that's currently on the board, um, it made me wonder whether you all had an opportunity to look at um, the history of Silver Spring, what it was, right? I mean, because, and the reason I ask is because this really reminds me of what used to be at the Metro. <laughs> when when we had the, um, there there were, you know, levels and 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 green space. And, and, and so I'm wondering in, in coming up with your various designs, you know, I mean, there, believe it or not, there used to be like a whole lot of big department stores downtown and, you know, um, so, so I'm wondering in whether when you did your various designs, you had an opportunity to look at some of 
what Silver Spring used to be like through the years and, and whether that influenced you in any way. Yeah, I think the students can respond to that. I think Judy and, and uh, Samantha, you guys have did you talk a little bit about the history research we did about Silver Spring and whatnot? Hi, my name is Judy. Um, so as part of our site analysis, we did have a team that looked at the development of Silver Spring and how it's um, grown over time. So we looked specifically at like the railroad and how um, transit has developed and how like the different um, cores of downtown has developed. And um, I think various groups took different um, aspects of history that they focused on to um, prioritize and kind of influence and inform their designs. Um, and so I think depending on like the scheme, um, we definitely looked at different aspects of history I will say, we didn't put it in the presentation, but the report has a section on the history and the analysis of students. It's very important. We never ignore that. We just didn't put it in. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing that, at least with our group, that we did this one, um, and I know several groups did this as well, uh, they focus a lot on Silver Spring being like the melting pot uh, of cultures. Um, early on, Silver Spring had a lot of different cultures, different ethnicities. Um, all around and what we wanted to do as a class is incorporate that character into each of our designs so not necessarily have you know this area whatever it may be uh, particular to one group of people but it, it serves the whole community so I had a, a comment and a question. Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. Uh, first, just wanted to thank the students for their really great work. There's a, some really, really great ideas. And um, I also have, I've been to um, the High Line in New York City multiple times and um, you know have, have had that experience. So I had a, a uh, actually two questions. One is, uh, when our department used to be in um, Silver Spring, if I took the metro to work, I would. I used to work along Coles, walk along Coleswell Avenue, but I changed that because I didn't like that experience. Um, but with with your with these different concepts, you know, some of them are more elevated experiences. But have you? And as I can't recall because we've seen multiple concepts. How did you think about? the pedestrian experience along Coleswell Avenue, for example, which is not great, um, and how that worked with your different um, concepts. Hi, I'm Samantha. Um, just going back to the Spina, which is the iteration of the High Line, um, we thought about Colesville Road and also East West Highway, um, and we also talked to a couple of the jurors who were working in the area and living in the area, similar to your experience, and they didn't have a pleasant pedestrian experience walking from one end to the other, and they would kind of have to make their way around um, that neighborhood space and then over. So instead of doing that, that's kind of one of the main reasons why we wanted to create the Spina um, to kind of have a connection from point A to point B because it was hard to get to that transit station um, because of all the traffic that was going through. Um, and when we visited the site, we actually saw that there wasn't even a pedestrian, like a really nice pedestrian experience ourselves. And we maybe visited for like a couple hours, so I can't imagine someone who lives there and works there every day to have to walk through those spaces. Um, so that was kind of another reason why we did this, Vina. 
Yeah, and to Austin, I have to talk a bit about the streets. I think one of the reasons why Colesville is a little not so great is because the sidewalks are very narrow and there's very little buffer between the pedestrians and the cars. So not only in our project, but in all the projects, all of our new neighborhoods uh, took this into account and all of our streets have ample walking space for pedestrians uh, with either parallel parking or street trees to create some sort of buffer between the walking pedestrians and the car. And so if you think about streets you like to walk on, uh, you'll notice that there's a fair amount of distance between you and moving cars. So that's something that we learned in the studio uh, that hopefully uh, in the future we can start to implement. Did, one thing, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Did, did anybody focus on the dimension of, a, of an adequate sidewalk? I think 15 feet is about pretty good on the lower end. Um, I think Georgia Avenue has 20 to 25 feet. It's quite depends on what you want to use it for. Um, but without parallel parking, I mean, Coastal Road is not a nice environment. There's no parallel parking in most of it. It just is very harsh. Now, you brought up a very interesting question, which is, you know, do you remake Colesville and try and do that? And I think we, we tended to kind of, it's, most of the schemes wanted to connect to the Colesville and bring people up onto their plazas rather than make Col remake Colesville. That would be a whole other studio, remaking <laughs> Colesville. No, but maybe it should be done. I mean, I, I think your point's a very good one. The East-West Highway one is an interesting one, though, because that entrance under the metro, when you walk up Colesville coming off east-west, it's very harsh. And it's not, a, I don't know how many, you know, you can put as many murals as you want in there. Exactly. And it still is, is crummy. <laughs> so, so what this group did, and you can see it a little bit here, their whole idea was to cross over oh, east-west okay. and to make the actual access to the station in the park. Now, I usually am not an advocate, nor is Georgianne, for over street bridges and things like that. You know, there's the one at Prince George's Plaza, which I think probably doesn't work very well and things. But in this particular case, it seemed like if you could make an event out of it and get to the station and get to the plaza on the uphill side and connect the open space on the downhill side and create more access to transit, it might be something worth thinking about. Um, as a rule of thumb, I wouldn't, but I think in this case, they came up with it, and we talked about it, and we thought, well, you know, it's something we should put out there, and this group should, you know, you, when you have six teams, you can kind of push one group one way and another group another way, and these guys bit on that idea, and they said, well, we're going to try and make that work, and I think it's something worth thinking about. Well, I would definitely suggest, you know, for potential future studio project, I mean, Colesville Road, or, you know, there are other corridors in its county, but just in relation to the question that, um, the chair asked about sidewalk was we have a, the complete streets design guide that has that um, those dimensions, that guidance, depending upon different types of corridors. They're all different types of road typologies. And so that could be a useful resource, you know, for future studios to help sort of inform, you know, your designs, because those are actual those are guidelines that we apply right now uh, when we get. Uh, development projects that come through our department for review and that ultimately come to the board, you know, creating those buffers so that the, the experience for pedestrians is very important uh, for our department and, and using a lot of different ways to do that is that's something we're actually doing. Um, and so I definitely, you know, encourage, you know, future studios to, to consider that as well. Almost all the schemes do have a, a connection to Colesville. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, and even the first one we showed, it's kind of interesting to think about. 
Um, what they did was made a kind of loggia connection here that kind of screened the bad traffic up, but you can still mm -hmm. move through that up into the... And mm -hmm. what, when you think about Silver Spring, it's an interesting thing to contemplate because I think what a lot of the group was trying to do was to get down Ellsworth to the downtown area and over to the older Silver Spring area here, there. So there was a, probably a bias to orient things that way, which, you know, but that was the bias. And maybe, you know, you'd argue about it, but it's one way to see it. Anything else? I think uh, we we appreciate your work and your your ideas. I mean, Silver Spring has been the target of many people's thought for since it was a uh, a uh, a railroad suburb, uh, and then became the first shopping center in the suburb and the first car-oriented shopping center. And you all reflected Art Deco, which which was in the in the core of, of Silver Spring as well. Uh, we were all, it was also the home of the first shop, of uh, the first department store uh, out there. So it, it, it's a significant place in the county. Uh, uh, you treated it well and with some uh, vision that, that uh, we sometimes don't have because we look at how practical we can do to get it done. Uh, you, you, uh, it, it's nice to be able to ignore the number of landowners that exist uh, that, that will have to coordinate to get a uniform path all the way from one end to the other, and it, it's enormously hard to do on a piecemeal basis. Uh, you know, uh, just, just challenges all over, but uh, what we appreciate your work and your efforts and your, and your time to share it with us. Well, thanks very much, and, and thanks to the students, the ones that were here, the ones that are watching online. They um, um, really put the effort in, and um, we, we hold our students to a, to a high level of professional accomplishment and try and measure them that way. And we hope that this stuff is useful. We think this is a tremendous opportunity for the region, for the county, for people who live in Silver Spring, and, and we're, we're happy to sort of lay our hands on it and offer our thoughts. So thanks so much for listening. Today, Georgia, you want to say anything in closing? Thank you so much for having us. The students actually appreciate the opportunity to share their work. And this is real life, guys. So we're trying to be the architects of the real world implications. Um, so thank you for Are you planning to present this to other groups or Chamber of Commerce? <laughs> other groups? Maybe we'll, Civil we'll Spring we'll Chamber of Commerce? We'll go anywhere and talk about or? it. I mean, it's not a problem for us. You, you, uh, you, know, you we get a lot of, lot of owners are. Well, we will the share the report sprints. with you all, and anyone, we'll put it on our website. Okay. Tiny's Good. group will have it, so it'll be there. And, you know, um, obviously we hope some developers are listening in. Yeah. One of the things that is true is <laughs> they do. you all own a lot of land around the station, so public-private ventures there might be something to consider. Yeah. And, and the we is a, is a big category here uh, under we own the land because uh, there's individual sections that own the land. There's WMATA. There, there's the the um, the department, the uh, parking district, and the parking district has to answer to its own bondholders, different from the county. So the whole world gets more complicated as soon as you land on the ground. But well, we we thank we thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your taking the time. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you.
Good afternoon. Uh, this is uh, still January 12th, 2023. This is the planning board session. We are on item 7, ZTA 22-11, technical corrections. This is a public hearing for which we have no speakers. These are technical corrections of a zoning text amendment. Zoning text amendments can, can uh, be proposed by the planning board under, under the uh, land use article. Uh, we, we have that authority uh, under the council rules of procedures. The, the council must introduce something that we propose. Uh, so uh, uh, we a little bit, uh, as long as the council keeps those procedures, we force the council's hand in, in, in some regard. The, the technical corrections uh, are, are in order in, in light of the fact that the number of members of the council has increased and the fact that every now and again we get section numbers wrong within, within other sections. Um, uh, I, I know I would generally hand this over to, to staff, but I think this is really a very self-explanatory uh, matter. Uh, I know that Commissioner Hill would like to make amend an amendment to the uh, uh, ZTA 2211. Yeah, it's on page 11. It's item 15103.a.8. And my observation is, in this particular section, there is a change of 7 to 9 for the vote change. This is regarding to whether um, the council can override the county executive on commissioners, not the chair, the commissioner uh, situation. And I'm just, I'm curious why that's an odd, it, it's, it's different than, all the other supermajority things that we have here. Most of them go from six to eight. And my suggestion is that we change this particular one from seven to eight to bring them all in line with each other. For example, B4 has the chair override, and that's, that's eight, not nine. Um, and my, my sentiment on this is these sort of peculiarities, I think, are one of the ways that our statute can kind of accumulate to be inaccessible to a lot of the citizenry and the public. And it seems to me that standardization here, first of all, I don't understand why the variation occurred in the first place, but um, being consistent is, is kind of good policy. And it's an area I would suggest that, that was up for amendment just because of the increase in the number of, uh, uh, of council members, so it's still within the area of the technical correction. Uh, do any commissioners have anything else to say? Oh. Well, yeah. staff has something. Yeah, um, one of the main reasons that the vote counts going from seven to nine rather than seven to eight is in 2022, the state of Maryland amended the land use article that affects the Park and Planning Commission and the district council votes, and the state law says it's going from seven to nine. And so this is consistent with the state law. Um, so if we want to make that change, we need to call Annapolis and have them make it would be my interpretation of this. Yeah, I, I, I was confused on whether the, that, <clears throat> that was state law that was adopted or that was state law being proposed. According to the uh, council at the county and district council, it's already been adopted and we're a little behind the eight ball getting the zoning code updated to match it. 
And for the record, I'm also Ben Berbert. I'd never introduce oh. myself for this hearing. <laughs> well, well, welcome to our uh, pre-launch uh, uh, zoning text amendment session. Um, uh, I, I, to me, that seems pretty dispositive as a reason. <laughs> yeah, if the, if the horse has already left the barn, um, that probably is not the greatest idea to do that, but it still strikes me as the right thing to do. I'm happy to note maybe in the transmittal memo that this was discussed, but that the ultimate recommendation was to Conform leave it to state law. A, yeah. yeah, I think that's a that's a good idea. Raise it, raise it to them. Uh, they might want to go and ask the state for an amendment someday. Uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning. Um, I just wanted to see if I could get that citation. Exactly where were we, you referring to? It's again? on page 11. And it's under item 15, uh, 15103, but it's item A8. And it starts out by the affirmative right. vote of seven to nine of its okay. members. Yeah, so that is that that is the actual law. That's the, the, the state law. So there's nothing in the ZTA, as far as I can see. I'm just doing no, a quick scan through that, here. There was. That is in the ZTA. Uh, where is that? Uh, page? I'll, I'll that's, that's state law. OK, again, the, the ZTA runs from, uh, as introduced, runs from page of, of our, our PDF here. I'm going back to the beginning here. Uh, introduction, it begins on page three and the, with all of the lined, uh, the numbered lines. It, it's what, line 118. Line 118. Okay, that's uh, from six to eight. It's changing from six to eight. There's nothing he, in here that relates to the nine. The nine Oh. is in the state law, which begins on page 10. So the state law was part of the introduction package when this was in, the ZTA was introduced at the council. Uh, and they used that just to say, here's what we're trying to be consistent with. And so there are other, are other things in that state law that are not addressed by the ZTA. And that line eight, uh, which Commissioner Hill is referencing, that says by the affirmative vote of now nine of its members, the county council may appoint a commissioner over the disapproval of the county executive. That's not addressed in the ZTA. The ZTA only deals with sectional map amendments, local map amendments, corrective map amendments, and zoning text amendments, and how what number of votes are required for that, not the appointment of okay, commissioners. My, my confusion about what was in our packet and what was under review for us. And, and, but I would ask the question, why is it not seven, which is still a supermajority, and and eight instead. Why, why are we creating the greater burden? The only thing I could come up with by just quickly running the math is when you divided six into nine, you got a number greater than 66.6, .6, which would be two thirds. Seven into 11 gives you a number less than 66.6. .6. It's like 63 and change. Whereas having then jump up to the eight gives you a number that is in excess of 66.6. .6. I'm not 100% sure that's what it's based on, but that is my plausible assumption as to why they did that. Well, if there's not a move to, to change the eight, I would at least flag that for, again, for the council's attention, that they, they may or may not want to keep to 66.5% or whatever it is. Uh, the glories of adding two to an odd number. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the all the percentages are always going to be a little bit off. You know. Uh, is, is that okay if we just note it for everybody? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, you have the consent of the board. All those in favor of of, uh, of proposing ZTA 22-11 uh, to the council, please say aye. Is that a motion by the chair? Aye. That's a motion. I'm sorry. Well, it's okay. Just, I'll just for, it, for clarity, <laughs> uh, we're, you're not proposing the ZTA. The ZTA is introduced. Oh, we're just, oh that's right. right. We're, we're, we're just off providing today. comments. Yeah. Right. I'm okay. sorry. What can I tell you? Uh, Amy is is still there too. Okay. Um, for, sorry about that. Oh, yeah, can I have a... I, I will make the motion that the chair just enunciated. Second. Can I have a second? Second. I second it. Thank you. There we go. And should we have the vote again? Vote again. Can we have a vote again to submit our comments for public hearing? Hi. Aye. 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 Thank you. Uh, what can I tell you? <laughs> now comes a, a, a really existential moment for me as we discuss our comments on ZTA 22-12, which was introduced by the council at the recommendation of the planning board. Why is this existential to me? Uh, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a, a moment predicted by, um, by Einstein. If you go faster than the speed of light, you see the past. And all I see in the, this ZTA is my past, because <laughs> I was involved both in the, um, the original ZTA that created the overlay districts, mm -hmm. and then I was involved in uh, looking at the uh, proposed introduction of this ZTA when I was at council. Um, uh, you have the staff r report before you. The, the short line of that staff report is to say that events have changed su sufficiently that the need for this uh, clarification or modification, however you want to characterize it, is unnecessary. That, that there are very, very limited applications to it uh, that the staff is content with with its in, internal interpretation of this and, and we would recommend to council they go forward with their lives without hearing this ZTA. Uh, I've been in, in touch with uh, council staff who has advised me that if we uh, agree with the staff today what will happen is that the council will um, uh, make a motion to withdraw the ZTA and not go forward with the public hearing. Um, so it's somewhat a significant event. We did get one piece of testimony that essentially said, that's a great idea. That's, that's what we want. We, uh, we agree with the staff uh, uh, recommendation on that. Um, so with that explanation of Einstein, not that I had anything to do with the theory, theory itself, um, uh, I'll entertain a motion. Can I, so just for, because a lot of us might have got lost in the Einstein thing, Jeff, so <laughs> I just, <laughs> I didn't, I was with you 100%. 
But um, but I, I just do want to make very clear what it is we are saying here. Staff recommends that the um, that um, that basically no action be taken on ZTA 22-12 at this time, and and that is what we are seeking to transmit to the council. Yeah. That so I just want to be really clear. That that's yeah. absolutely clear. Okay, then I move that we transmit to the council a motion, excuse me, a recommendation that we, that no action be taken on ZTA 22-12. Nice second. second. All right, we have a motion Amy, Amy. and a, a second. Um, uh, I, I, I ask forgiveness from fellow board members from, from my recollections of the world on this, but You're <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we have a motion and a second. All those in favor, say aye. 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 All right. Well, the ayes have it. That will be our recommendations. Uh, I, I have been told that um, council staff will not wait for our written testimony. They'll act on our action, but we should still get something up as soon as we can um, so that it can affect the, their dismissing the public hearing before it occurs. Hopefully you'll see it tomorrow afternoon, maybe. That would latest. be an excellent time. If, tomorrow morning's good, too. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, we stand in... in yeah, when do you want to come back? Uh, what time is it now? We'll come... Uh, we're scheduled to come back at 1.30? We are. Uh, I think we can... Uh, is everybody okay if we come back at 1.30 among the board? Yes? Yes? All right. Sooner? Do you want to do sooner? No, because people, people out in the world are looking at for 1.30. Yeah, there, there aren't many people of this. These are briefings, but we okay. can do either. Mr. Hill, 115. Whatever you're touching is fine. The leader okay with me. 115 is fine. <laughs> All right, let's go 115. Okay. We're back. We'll, we'll reconvene at, at 115 here on the dot. Uh, and not on commission time, but on real world time. Okay. Thank you very much. We stand in recess.
Good afternoon. This is the January 12, 2023 session of the Planning Board. We are on item 10, a briefing uh, dash overview of the MPDU program. That's moderate pre-priced dwelling unit program. And 15% and moderately priced dwelling unit requirement designation. Um, uh, I don't uh, if uh, staff would like to introduce themselves, then uh, please proceed. Thank you, Chair. For the record, Lisa Gavoni, Housing Planner with Countywide Planning and Policy. And today I'm very lucky to be joined by representatives from the Department of Housing and Community Affairs. who can answer all the questions that I can. We have Summer <laughs> Cross and uh, Maggie Gallagher. Yes, thank you. thank you very much for coming. I know I will appreciate it. So we have, a, we have a little bit of a lot to get through today, um, but I think, I think it'll be well worth your time. First, we're gonna define some key terms in housing policy. We're gonna go through all the affordable housing programs. Well, not all, but most of the most commonly seen affordable housing programs in the county, how they kind of interact with planning and the county overall. And then we're gonna talk, we have some data, which I think is really enlightening, that highlights kind of how we're doing in terms of affordable housing production and preservation. And then we're going to have an overview of the moderate price dwelling unit program, and then we're going to talk about how areas of the county get designated to have a 15% requirement instead of 12.5%. So first, let's, let's dive right in um, and talk about what an area median income is. Um, this is a word that we use a lot in housing policy, um, and each year HUD calculates the area median income for every geographic region in the country by using data from the U.S.-based American Community Survey. The area median income is the midpoint of a region's income distribution, meaning that half of all households in a region earn more than the median and half earn less. And when we talk about affordable housing programs and who they serve, we often use AMI as a qualifier. Um, and we use it to describe the income ranges that that program serves. And when people talk about the term median family income, we're usually referring to what a family of four is at 100% AMI, which in the Washington, D.C. area, it's around $142,000, so quite high. And next, what is income-restricted affordable housing? It's housing that's available at a reduced or subsidized rent or sales price. These units generally have income caps that determine their eligibility, helping low and moderate income households and families find affordable housing. And in the county, some income-restricted apartments are owned by the county's housing authority, the Housing Opportunities Commission. And and others are privately owned or held by nonprofits, but generally meet the requirements to meet the needs of uh, income-restricted tenants. The Housing Initiative Fund is a locally funded affordable housing tool that provides flexible loans and grants to help create and preserve affordable housing in Montgomery County. It's our Housing Trust Fund. Historically, the HIF, as it's called, has been supported primarily by revenue from a deed recordation tax dedicated to the county's rental assistance program and general appropriation. And the HIF is administered by the county's DHCA, their Department of Housing and Community Affairs, and the HIF is used in a number of strategic ways and significant ways to advance virtually all of our housing priorities in the county. The HIF does things like extend the life of the expiring MPDU, assist with renovating affordable units, and assist in financing the production of affordable housing. So the county has a variety of programs that serve a variety of households and populations. We'll briefly go through the income bands and talk about 
what programs serve that income band? And we'll start with the households that are generally the hardest to serve. And that's the households under 50% AMI, which is around $70,000 for a family of four in Montgomery County. So that's, that's hard. It's hard to live on in Montgomery County. Um, and generally, we really only meet these needs with peer subsidy, which money um, generally. At income below 50% of AMI, there's a significant mismatch between the supply of rental housing available and the number of households that need it. You can see on this chart, we have a gap of around 50,000 units that we need to meet the needs of the people that already live here, that are spending too much of their income on housing, their cost burden. So it's a really important struggle that we struggle with every day. But we're generally, I think that you know, Montgomery County struggles with cost burden, but so does pretty much every other region in the county. So it's, it's a huge national problem too. But the primary vehicle for rental assistance in this income ban is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And that's administered by HOC. HOC currently administers around 7,000, but there's about a 40,000 wait list for them. Um, and these provide a rent subsidy to clients so they can afford safe and quality affordable housing in Montgomery County. And the subsidy amount is based on a payment set by HOC, which and the client pays no more than 40% of their income on housing. There are two main types of vouchers. There's the project-based and the tenant-based. And they're exactly like they sound. The project-based vouchers are assigned to a specific buildings and clients must reside in that building to receive assistance. But with tenant-based, the client can use their assistance at any home, apartment, or other private market residence that meet the household requirements and standards. In general, the family's income may not exceed 50% AMI. And we'll talk a lot about MPDUs today, but I think a really important part of when we talk about the strength of MPDUs, about one-third of all MPDUs serve households on, at 50% AMI or lower. And that's through partnerships with HOC and other nonprofits. Tenants can pay a little bit more of their income and, and stretch to get that restricted units, but I, I think that's a really important part that I always try to emphasize when we're talking about this. And of course, federal agencies, they provide essential funds to county programs for construction, acquisition, and renovation. Um, some of the, most of the funds come from HUD, and they're through programs like the Community Development Block Grant Program and their Federal Home Investment Partnership. So next we'll talk about moderate income households. Uh, well, we're going to spend a lot of time on the MPDU program, so we're just going to gloss over it right now. But um, it's an, our landmark inclusionary zoning program that has a set aside for between 12.5 to 15% units and developments over 20 units. Um, and another tool to serve moderate income households that we have is called rental agreements. Um, they are often used in the county with a conduction with landlords and multifamily property owners to assist and the preservation of affordable housing. In such cases, agreements are entered in voluntary between existing tenants and property owners to address the, spe the specifics of rent increases in the future. And recently, we've been using them as a tool in master plans. Um, we haven't had one come for development yet, but it's been a pretty recent in initiative where we'll say, okay, you have naturally occurring affordable housing today, but we know you wanna redevelop. We know you're right by the purple line. We, we know that there's gonna be future press, so we'll, pressure to redevelop. So we'll let you redevelop, but in exchange, you're gonna give us a higher percentage of MPDUs, and then a certain amount of these units are gonna be entered into rental agreements with DHCA. That limits the amount that rents can be increased. There may be income qualifications. Um, so that's something that we've been using recently in master plans, like the Veers Mill master plan, for example, um, and the Forest Glen Montgomery Hills master plan. 
And then um, we talked a little bit about the HIF and projects financed with the HIF can help preserve affordable housing, especially in this, uh, especially for MPDUs that are near their expiration. And finally, um, the low-income housing tax credit is a federally funded and state-administered tax credit that can help cover development costs of building affordable housing. And nationally, it's the biggest tool to building affordable housing. And I'm gonna show you some data about how it looks in Montgomery County, but it's um, awarded on a 9% and a 4% level. The 9% is competitive. You have to apply for it through the qualified allocation process, which in the past life I used to set, but now I'm, I'm here in this regards, but it's, it's Montgomery County is not as competitive as they would like to be for the 9% QAP, um, largely because we're competing against places like Baltimore that have a lot of poverty. But we are lucky to see about one, one nine percent project a year, but we used to see a lot more, and we'll talk about that in a couple of slides, but I just wanted that to be known. And then there's workforce housing, too. Um, so given that we've talked about how expensive it is to live here, the county also has a workforce housing program which serve households at 70 to 100% AMI, which is about 90,000 to 150,000 for a family of four. Um, generally, the workforce housing program is a voluntary program um, for private developers, but the county often uses workforce housing requirements for agreements for building on things like county-owned land. And then we also have down payment and homeownership programs through both the county and the Housing Opportunities Commissions that can help make homeownership a reality in a high-cost area like Montgomery County. And finally, for programs, naturally occurring affordable housing is not really a program. Um, it's a resource for Montgomery County. Um, we generally define naturally occurring affordable housing as unrestricted units that are affordable to households around around or under 80% AMI, which is about $110,000 for a family of four. And they, typically they are affordable due to their age, their location, the lack of amenities, but they are still a, a very important resource to the county and we try to preserve them whenever possible. So next I'm gonna walk through some data. So this is our rental housing supply in context. So about 80% of overall the county's housing supply is, is unrestricted. Um, however, when we look at units under 65% AMI, about 40% of our units are income restricted. And overall, one out of five units in the county is income restricted. And so when we were, this, when we were doing this, this study, we looked at other jurisdictions, and this does compare you know, well. We have a lot more income restricted housing than a lot of other jurisdictions, but we still have such a need. So I want to caveat that saying like, yes, we are preserving and producing a lot of affordable housing, but it's nowhere near where we need to meet the need. And overall, the county has actually been gaining income restricted affordable housing at a faster rate than it's being lost. Most of the units that we are losing, they're in section eight units, within a larger market rate properties, which are generally hard to intervene and, and preserve uh, the units when they're near expiration. While most of the units that are being built is through the MPDU program. And since 2000, we've added over 5,000 deed restricted units to the county. Um, and this is really a testament to the great work that the DH DHA is doing. Since 2000, the, co the county has been implementing preservation strategies and production strategies to really keep those units that we were at risk of losing. 
we did a, a preservation of affordable housing study where we looked at at-risk properties and we took it to DHA and they're like, we know, we, they are very, they intervene when needed and they do a great job of really preserving those units. The vast majority of our income restricted units are, is from the low income housing tax credit. So about 32% or one third of all of our affordable housing stock is from LIHTC. But you know, I, I just talked about how we're not as competitive for the 9% as we would like. And in the wake of declining in federal and state resources, we're not getting as many light tech units as we would like. So the MPDU program, which is a contingent on new development, has really picked up that slack. So if we didn't have that MPDU program, we would be losing units, affordable units, but we're not due to the success of the MPDU program. And then more than a third of the total deed restricted inventory, about 35% was built in the 60s and 70s. Um, making them 40 to 50 years old. I think that you know where I'm going with this is that they're, they're older, they're falling into disrepair, they might be en entering the, the end of its useful life. And so we're kind of, you know, what, what do we do with them? And we actually haven't lost a lot of um, market rate affordable housing or even income restricted housing due to the work of DHA. And also just because they're hard to re redevelop. Um, I looked at demolition permits from the county recently and since 2000, we've lost 10 multifamily buildings to demolition and redevelopment. But five were actually from affordable housing providers that were able to build more affordable housing that was already there in total units. So it's actually in the net, we are in redevelopment, we are gaining affordable housing units. But again, that can change. We know that you know, we had a briefing on Thrive today. Where we talked about our redevelopment context changing, moving more towards infill. And we know that pressure is going to be there. And we know that pressure to redevelop these units is going to be there. So I just wanted to highlight that is, I don't have the answers to what we do. Um, we're kind of right now working on a property by property strategy for these properties in our master plans, but it, it, it will become a bigger issue in the future. And then finally to end the data portion, um, this is a map of where most of the affordable housing is in the, in the county, as you can see, we have a sizable amount in Silver Spring. Um, a lot of the affordable housing units that are in places like Bethesda is MPDUs. So that new development that we're getting after that master plan is in increasing the affordable housing stock that we're seeing in the western parts of the county quite significantly. So next, we're halfway done. Um, we're gonna give an overview of the MPDU program. So, I think, I think we all know that the MPDU program, the Martin Lee Price Drilling Union, is the hallmark program of Montgomery County's housing policy. It is believed to be the country's first mandatory inclusionary zoning law. It was enacted in 1974, so almost 50 years ago, with the aim of furthering the objective of providing a full range of housing choices for all income, ages, and household sizes. The law imposes requirements on construction of affordable housing to meet the existing and anticipated needs for moderate income housing. So the MPD program is an inclusionary zoning program. The number and location of MPDUs are established in the land use and zoning approvals of a new construction development. So we really only get MPDUs in new development. And the preliminary plan of subdivision, which is subject to the planning board's approval. Um, we, you know, the MPDU requirement requires 125 to 15%, depending on where you are in the county, on all new developments over 20 units to be affordable to moderate income households. 
And the program offers incentives, and we'll go through all of them, through op mostly, mostly, sorry, mostly through optional increases in density, a bonus density, to offset the cost of construction to encourage the construction of MPDUs. So the control period for the MPD program for rental units is 99 years. So it's basically in perpetuity. And for for sale, it's 30 years. But if you sell within that 30-year period, it restarts. And the MPDU rental and sales programs, they're run completely differently. The rental rates for MPDUs are set based on income level, and they're administered by leasing offices, and they require annual recertification by tenants for the life of their tenancy. In sales prices, they're based on construction costs and maintain a deeper affordability down to 50% AMI for some units, and they're administered by the MPDU office, and once purchased, they do not require any further certification. And currently, the program serves households earning up to 65% for garden style, uh, multifamily, and then are up to 70% for high rise and for sale units. A household, they need to have a minimum income of $40,000 to qualify for a mortgage loan of at least $150,000 and have savings for a down payment and closing costs to purchase an MPDU. And we just mentioned that for rental units, the minimum income required varies from property to property. So the county has been, the MPD program has been very successful. I think we, we've had this talk before that it's, it is most likely the most successful inclusionary zoning program in the country. Um, we've produced over 16,000 MPDUs. And right now there's currently over 8,000 under price control. That averages out to 3,600 uh, 3, for home ownership, 3,100 for rental, and 1,600 owned by HOC and other nonprofits. In 2018, we made some changes so that projects under that 20-unit threshold, they're not required to provide MPDUs on site, but they are required to make a payment to the county's housing trust fund, the housing initiative fund that we just talked about. And the amount of that payment required to the HIF is equal to, it's small, it's, it's half a percent of the purchase price of each dwelling unit, and that's paid at settlement. So after the planning board agrees in the preliminary plan and or site plan to a certain percent of MPDUs, the developer or builder must go to DHCA for two agreements to in the MPDU process before they are offered. The first is the agreement to build moderately priced dwelling units. And this agreement must be executed with DHCA before building permits will be issued by DPS. And the second is an offering agreement which is submitted to DHCA once the developer in, or builder is ready to make MPDUs available for sale or rent to eligible MPDU certificate holders. So alternate agreements. Um, in 2018, we made some changes to this too. Um, but I want to preface this by saying that alternate agreements are very, very rare. Every effort should be made to provide the required number of units on site. And if there are extraordinary circumstances, then you can talk to DHA, but there's no guarantee that those will be approved. Alternate payments are only available for for sale developments. No alternative agreement may be entered for a rental development that has to do with pay. Alternate location agreements are only available for high-rise buildings, but may be applied for either for sale or rental. And those are generally used when we have condos that have um, high condo fees, where if you take the MPDU price 
and the condo fee, they're no longer affordable to the MPDU purchaser. And then finally, the last part of the presentation. Sure. Maybe before we go into this, we could see if they have any questions about the programs and give you a chance to pause sure. too. Sure. Yeah. Sorry, I know I was talking very fast and very quickly. I, I let me ask a quick question. Um, you said that there's, it's very rare to do an alternate payment or alternate location. Do we have any idea how many, from point of view of DHCA, are, you know, for the MPDU change with the alternate location, alternate payment? Yes. Um, so for the record, Summer Cross, I'm the manager of the Affordable Housing Program section at DHCA. Uh, we do an annual report for the MPDUs. I actually was just looking at it this morning trying to work mm -hmm. on 2022. Uh, I don't have the exact number, but it's in the 30s that we've ever done. So we've only done, say, 30 alternative agreements. Out of how many, more or less? Oh, well, so the alternative agreements, oh, you mean out of the number we've been asked to do? Yeah. I don't know that. Oh, but the number of MPDUs that are produced every year, do you have any idea? Uh, we average around 300. MPDUs, new okay. MPDUs a year. And one clarification I would say, although Lisa's got everything right, um, she mentioned that we only get MPDUs when we have new development. That also applies when we have redevelop redevelopment from commercial or office to mm -hmm. residential. So that would also apply. Okay. Um, do you have any demographics on who are the people either renting or owning the MPDUs? Is that in the report? Like it, it will be in this year's. We're oh, working on good, putting that together good. for 2022. We don't have as much information on our rentals because, as Lisa mentioned, it's a completely separate program administered by the leasing offices. Yeah. So don't, we don't necessarily collect all you the data. We look that. at their income, but we don't have the full demographics. Either. And things. I know that the control period was changed. No, Correct. recently, was that for the 90, for the owner or for the rental? Change in 2004. It was change. And I think it, it changed both. I think it went from 30 years to 99 years for rental and then 20 to 30 years for for sale. Correct. So what happens if somebody, uh, let's say, does the, um, you know, purchases the MPDU and decides to sell it before the 30 year? Mm -hmm. What happens? Who, who, who gets the equity? The county? or split, or how does it work? Not before the 30 years. So if they sell before the 30-year covenant ends, uh, they come back to our office and we recalculate that rate. There's a set formula. It's based on CPI adjustments. They would get credit for realtor fees, in, um, improvements that are made, things like that. But we reset that price at another affordable level and try to sell it to another certificate holder so that we maintain it in the program and we would reset those covenants okay. for another 30 years. If they sell at the end of the after the 30 years have expired, then uh, they can sell it at the market rate value, and we also have another formula to calculate. But that's when we would do a shared profit of the difference between half to the county and half to the homeowner. I see. Now, if the developer does the MPDU, you know, the 15 percent or the 12, and DHCA cannot occupy because you have a waiting list of about 400 or something Correct. like that. Yep. If you cannot occupy the unit within a certain time period. What happens to the unit? So for the rentals, what happens? You're speaking of the Yeah, rentals. the rental or the, the the ownership. We have absolutely no problem finding um, purchasers for new units. Okay. That's not been a problem. If we have a resale and we can't sell it, there's a whole process of times we have to make sure that they've been advertised at a certain rate. But we could either 
remove the income restriction mm-hmm. um, and allow or possibly the household size restriction, uh, but we would always have it to a new first-time home buyer, um, either within the program or without, but they would still be subject to the covenants and restart it if it's within that 30 years. Commissioner Branson. Yeah, um, thank you. I think Commissioner Pinero asked a lot of my questions, but um, but also, my mouth. Wanted to know about, I don't think we've covered it yet. It, it was in the materials. Um, but I wanted to understand about the lottery. Um, I, so, so why don't you explain how the lottery works? Because the lottery is really bugging me right now. <laughs> and the reason it's bugging me is because um, um, it seems to me that, you know, you could be on the waiting list for, sub, sub, for a substantial period of time and not your number might not come up um that that that's troublesome to me so so i, I want to hope i'm misunderstanding the lottery um can, can you explain how the lottery works so the lottery is when we have either new units available or we have resale units we would start what's called a random selection drawing we I use the acronym rst So um, we have a requirement to, let me step back and say that people who are allowed to purchase an MPDU have to go through a certain training and they submit uh, income information that we verify and so they become what's called a certificate holder. When you become a certificate holder, you get points and it becomes a weighted lottery system. You get a point if you live in the county, you get a point if you work in the county and you get a point for each year that you're waiting, up to five points. Um, Then when we have this random selection drawing, we would advertise it on our website. Um, Individuals can look and keep checking that for units that that interest them and sign up for that particular RSD. Uh, Depends on the location, the unit, all kinds of factors. Honestly, resales, you have a better chance of winning a resale than a new um, because it just depends on how many people are also interested in that. And then we have a computer-generated, completely human hands-off system where the computer will knock out anybody who's not qualified, but then takes the qualified owner or potential purchasers and ranks them. So your fives will go up top, then your fours, then your threes, and we would present that list to the realtor who just simply go down the list and start calling people. So yes, unfortunately, people can be on our waiting list for a very long time. Some people will never win. Um, but that's because we have over 400 current applicants. And as I mentioned, we only generate about 300 of these, half of which approximately are for sale. So if we have 400 people waiting and we only have 150 units, we can't, we can't provide a home to each person who's waiting. Yeah. Here's, okay. Here, I understand. Yeah, so I do understand how the lottery works. Um, so I'm trying to understand... Um, because we're we're supposed to be very concerned about equity and everything. And so, you know, to me, equity really also involves making sure that, that people should not have to um, be um, uh, harmed um, because 
of some random thing. You know, and, and this seems to me that the random thing can, is potentially harming people. Um, so what I'm wondering is whether it's possible, plausible, or can anybody consider it that people who have been um, on the list longer um, receive a, a greater weight in the determination? You know, and, and the reason this bugs me is because I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm thinking where these people are while they're waiting, right. while they're waiting. And, and, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I know you, you, that's not a decision you can make here today. Um, but, but I, I really think it, it should be considered. This is, um, cause this, this has everything to do with equity, you know? My colleague, uh, Maggie, also reminded me, we did coordinate this past summer with an economics PhD candidate who ran a survey of our homeowners. And one of the questions we asked was, what was your experience like with the RSD? And most people responded that they were on the waiting list approximately one to three years. My assumption is that anybody who's waiting more than three years probably moved on to try to find something else. But that's what we know so far. Commissioner Presley? Yes, hi, thank you. And, and again, uh, Mr. Pinheiro asked a lot of the questions that I had, but I, I want to understand how we plan for the units that are coming out of the system. My mother has the benefit of having been in an MPDU in Germantown for 38 years. Um, so it was pretty early in the program. But how, how does one track that and make sure that, you know, that, that unit is out of the system now? So when she moves on, it's not going to be a moderately priced unit anymore. It, are those, you know, in a database that we're tracking the loss and the gain? Is that part of what you were showing in your graph? The ones we're losing, are they in that um, that red dip? Yeah. Yes. We uh, we we work with DHA to create that graph back when we did the preservation of affordable housing study. And I would just add, we do have a database that we track, and at the end of that period, we get informed by title companies and sellers, and then we do we record a termination of covenants to document and clean title. Okay, and then, but but is that factoring in and how we're planning for the new units? I mean, I, I was on board when we raised the um, the requirement for MPDUs, um, but you know, do we need to be considering? raising that percentage again based on the you know paucity of units that's a that's a great question um so the the raising to the 15 percent as you know it's been a fairly recent endeavor i think there have you know the county executive has said in many public forums that he's looking to revise the mpdu program i'm sure that will be a consideration and when that happens we will take it to the board for their feedback, I would say we would probably be worried about the economics of that project because we know mm -hmm. from the work that we did in Bethesda where it pencils out there, but it doesn't, and it pencils out in places like Silver Spring, but in a lot of parts of these counties, they've never seen an MPDU because the economics are not there. It's a 99 mm -hmm. year subsidy for rental, but that is something that we would look at if uh, the county, if the executive branch introduces that legislation. I would also add that in, I believe you said it was 2004, 2005, when the law changed, we changed the control period. The control period for these units has 
changed since 1974. It's gone from five to 10 to 20 to 30. So what we're seeing, sorry, in the sales program, it's 10 to 30. So what we're seeing mm -hmm. with the MPDUs that we're losing from the program are within that 10 year period. So that's eventually gonna age out and those 30 years and the reinitiation re of that new 30 years, most people don't stay in their home for a full 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. So that trigger to, to start it up again will keep them within our program for a much longer time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, I, I think you can proceed So there are certain instances where the county minimum requirement is not 12.5%, it's 15%. Um, and I'm going to go through a little bit about how that, that works. Um, first, in 2018, Chapter 25A, which is the chapter of county code that dictates the rules for MPDUs, changed so that we could set a 15% requirement as part of a master plan. Before that, um, we would... We had some master plans where we would highlight the priority of affordable housing and recommend through public benefits that they provide 15%, but it wasn't as strong as the legal requirement that um, changed in, in 2018. So there's right now there's two master plans that have a 15% requirement that's through code, and that's the Silver Spring Downtown and Adjacent Communities Plan and the Bethesda uh, Downtown Plan. Be sorry. There also could be um, requirements mapped are in an overlay zone. Um, for example, the law actually changed after the Bethesda downtown plan was adopted, and the overlay zone actually dictated the 15% requirement, and we changed some of the public benefit points there. I know someone who wrote that, um, and so that has been around for a couple of years now. And then there is also high-income planning areas, and that's a minimum requirement of 15% for developments that are designated by the planning board, and we're gonna go through that today, um, in which 45% of the U.S. Census tracts have a median household income of at least 150% of the countywide median household income at the time a planning board accepts an application. Claire's mud, I know. Um, and then finally, there's also optional. And this, well, there's not a requirement there are often times when a developer may elect to provide 15% or even more MPDUs to receive incentives, and these incentives include bonus density, additional height, public benefit points, or impact tax waivers, and we're going to go through those right now. So the first is bonus density, which is the most commonly used incentive and it's the most well-known. Um, Montgomery County has a three-tiered bonus density system where there's you're allowed a 0.88% for each 0.1% increase in MPDUs above 12.5 to 15, and that's up to 22% bonus density. And then there's 0.16 for each 1% increase in MPDUs above 15% up and including 20%, and then when you're above 20%, it's 0.1% for each 1% increase in MPDUs above 20%. I know that's not clear to say the equation. I attached a chart link in the staff report and in the slide if you are interested in seeing how that equation works out. You can also receive additional height if the project exceeds 12.5% MPDUs, the height limit of the applicable zone and master plan does not apply to the extent required to provide the MPDUs. There's also um, an equation in our zoning code that kind of dictates of how much height you can receive and I provided some examples in your staff report, in my staff report if you're interested. And then 
Public benefit points. Um, projects are permitted to earn 12 points for every 1% MPDUs greater than 12.5%. Um, and if a project provides 20% MPDUs, they not required to provide any other category of public benefit points. There's different rules for the Bethesda overlay zone, but I'm not gonna get into those today, but they are in the staff report. And one thing I wanna make clear, so we're gonna talk about the areas of the county that have a 15% um, MPDU requirement. Those projects can still receive public benefit points for providing more than 12.5% MPDUs, even though they're required. Um, it states in county code, except for providing MPDUs exceeding 12.5% of a project's dwelling units, granting points as a public benefit for any amenity or project otherwise required by law is prohibited. And then finally, the, the other significant um, incentive for providing more MPDUs is, is an impact tax discount. So if a project provides 25% MPDUs, the applicable school and transportation taxes are just discounted by the amount equivalent to the lowest standard impact tax in the county's uh, impact tax. So what that means is um, you're gonna receive a briefing on, this, on the, the school's part of the growth and infrastructure policy next, but impact taxes are generally lowest in the red policy areas for transportation and the infill policy areas for schools. And so if a project did 25% in those areas, they would receive the full impact tax waiver. But if you're in the turnover school's impact area, or you're in, for example, the green transportation policy area, you would have that, your impact tax amount di discounted by the amount charged in the, generally the infill and red policy area. And there's also language about this in the staff report. So um, the last part of the presentation, I promise. Um, in 2018, Bill 3817 was passed by the county council and went effect in October 2018, and it created a 15% requirement for any planning area that is designated by the planning board in which 45% of the census tracts have a median income of at least 150% of the countywide median household income. And so planning staff calculates this requirement using median income data from the five-year ACS, using planning, planning area boundaries aggregated to census tracts because you can only get data from the census tracts. In the 2017 to 2021 five-year ACS, Montgomery County had a median income of around $117,000. So a 15%, 50% increase on that is about $60,000. So around $176,000 is 150% of the medium. And so the total area of all census tracts assigned to a planning area with a median income over that $176,000 is divided by the total area of all census tracts assigned to that planning area. And so 45% or more of the census tracts acreage assigned to that planning area has a median income higher than 176,000. That planning area is designated to have a 15% requirement. And I kind of highlighted in my staff report the steps that I take with some maps. So hopefully it's a little clearer there than me talking about it. Um, so in 2023, the planning areas with a 15% requirement that includes Bethesda Chevy Chase, Darnstown, Lower Seneca, North Bethesda, Poolsville, Potomac, and Travilla. The Upper Rock Creek planning area, which is somewhere over here, they had, they had a 15% requirement last year. It fell out this year. Poolsville fell in. Um, and then in addition, as discussed above, as discussed previously, there's a 15% requirement for the, both the Bethesda downtown plan and the Silver Spring downtown and adjacent communities plan. I think that's it. 
you have any questions? Let me uh, make a comment and then see how you, um, whether you agree with it or you don't. Um, you know, I was on the board of HOC for a number of years, and one of the things that we did uh, was transition from public housing into the rental assistance demonstration project, which basically meant no more public housing in the county and moving into project-based and uh, tenant-based voucher program. I've, I've always had the feeling, even though, you know, we decided that it was the best thing for Montgomery County at the time, that that meant that the income level of people being served and those being underserved um, meant that there was going to be less people being served uh, under 30% AMI. Because like you mentioned, the low-income housing tax credit, the 9% is very difficult to find. HOC tries to do the 4%, most of them, but then you need bond financing. You need other right. forms of subsidies to make the project work. Now, the, um, the fact that there's going to be less people underserved, which means um, families under 30% AMI, and the homeless, I mean, uh, I used to get calls from the council all the time, can you provide vouchers for the homeless? And because they cost, because they don't have hardly any income, it would cost HOC much more than they could afford because it would mean having to take a voucher from someone and that person could become homeless uh, in the process. So, I mean, do you agree that uh, with these changes to the RAD, there's a possibility that less low-income people be served in the county? And do you also feel, I, I feel that there's an, an incredible need for affordable housing in the county. I mean, for more housing, but particularly affordable housing. And the only way that HOC or any housing authority could do it is by mixed income to cross-subsidize from market to, um, to some of the low-income. But do you, do you feel that there's a need for affordable housing? Oh, oh yes, there's, there's a huge need for affordable housing. You know, I, I don't know enough about HOC's model beyond, you know, the, the mixed income model that they work, but I've always yeah. been impressed by their work, especially. Yeah. Oh, you know, they're incredibly creative. Incredibly creative incredibly. with financing. Oh, the, yeah. What they did at Chevy Chase Lake was, oh, yeah. was amazing, and, it, and they're the a lending. national model and for now, affordable but, housing. But, you know, they're getting rid of public housing like Holly Hall. They're getting rid of... Elizabeth House in Silver Spring, Holly Hall in New Hampshire. I mean, there's a number of projects that are being switched from traditional public housing, serving the poorest of the poor, to the voucher program, which is intended for people 60% AMI, right. basically, and mixing it with some of the voucher programs. So, I, I mean, I have a concern. Um, and I think that's fair. I mean, I think... You know, when I, I showed you that graph of, house, yeah. of affordable housing we're losing and, and gaining, and we're gaining MPDUs, but we're losing those, those Section 8 units, and that's, and that's a valid point. There, you know, there is a mismatch. But at the same time, that 30% AMI range is so hard to reach. It is hard. And is nationally, hard. public housing authorities are moving more towards the mixed-income housing yeah. model just because of yeah. the benefits. I would say, you know, HOC does a great job of mixing incomes, and I think that that's you know, a national model. So I, I understand your concern, but I, I do think that there are a lot of benefits to, you know, mixed income housing as compared to oh, yeah, definitely. Our, uh, pure project-based. Yeah. Okay. 
One, one of the things I didn't hear is, is uh, some of the physical aspects of MPDUs, that the fact that you require them to be scattered in the neighborhood, the fact that you require the exteriors to look like the exteriors mm -hmm. of others. Um, uh, we review each plan for livability standards. They have to be able to fit certain furniture in each room, too, as well. And you do that uh, by the time we get to site plan? or before site plan or after site plan? Um, if it's a single family or a townhouse development, we would identify where they are. Usually within a multifamily development, we don't get all the floor plans necessarily at site plan. To be able to identify it, we would do that, and we include a provision in our approval letters that we would need to review and approve that before we get to agreement to build. Yeah, but it's not something we should concern ourselves with when we have a site plan in front of us? No, we deal with that negotiation when we get it. Anybody else? Commissioner, your light's still Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I just wanted to just mention something very briefly. Tanya Stern, um, Acting Planning Director. The Council's uh, Planning, Housing, and Parks Committee is going to be holding um, a session focused on affordable housing on January 30th where they're going to have a number of speakers. Uh, we've been asked to participate to provide some, um, some data on the market, um, but I just wanted to put that on your radar. Um, I think that will be something that the board will be interested in, in <coughs> watching and listening to the discussion. That's it, I don't see any lights. Thank you very much. Um, we appreciate your, our guests coming as well to answer the questions. Uh, I know we've had a cooperative relationship like for forever. Uh, so it's, it's nice to see you here. So thank you very much. Do we sign off this one and go to, yes we do. <laughs>
Thank you. Uh, uh, it's the afternoon of January 12, 2023. This is the planning board session on item 11, a briefing on the current growth and in infrastructure policy dash schools. Uh, always an exciting topic. Uh, th this is an area that has changed significantly over time, and we'll learn from it from staff. Uh, uh, director? Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, just wanted to mention briefly that uh, we wanted to give this briefing to the board because there have been some questions with some regulatory applications in terms of um, the calculations related to school capacity. And so we thought that giving this broader uh, briefing will help you uh, help the board understand um, the school's element and the requirements um, related to that under the growth and infrastructure policy. Good afternoon, for the record. My name is Jesus Beck. Okay. From the countywide planning and policy. As said, I'll be um, briefing you on the school's component of the growth and infrastructure policy. Uh, we'll start by first looking through the history and context of the 2020 update that brought our policy to where it is. And then we'll start looking at the different components of the school's um, growth and infrastructure policy part. So in the early 1960s, um, if you see on the map here, only 15% of the county's total land area had been developed. And in 1964, the county's first general plan was written, with one of the major goals being to, um, to time the delivery of public facilities in accordance with private development. Um, this is in context of the county being mostly considered greenfield. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court found adequate pu public facilities ordinances constitutional. So by 1973, Montgomery County adopted its own APFO, which was to be um, in the form of the planning board releasing an annual growth policy report. And, and if I can just add something, in, in 1969, uh, the commission went to the state legislature to adopt something called the Premature Subdivision Ordinance. And it was an unfortunate term because nobody wanted to be in favor of premature subdivisions. But when they came back to the state legislature and put it forward to give us the permission to do APFO uh, as adequate public facilities, everybody wanted adequate public facilities. So, so marketing helped. But uh, I digress. It's all yours. So in the mid-1980s, the county experienced the largest amount of new development. And in the midst of all that development pressure, the county executive and council assumed a greater role of administering the APFO by having the county executive review the growth policies that the planning board proposes and then the council adopting it as a resolution. By the early 1990s, the amount of developed land area in the county had more than tripled to 48%. And the general plan was updated with refined goals and objectives to reflect that. In 2010, the annual growth policy was renamed to subdivision staging policy, which is what many people might still remember our growth policy to be as. So during our last quadrennial growth policy update, which was in 2020, we found that, um, excuse me, the 
my apologies. <laughs> my slides getting confused. We found that only 15% of the county's total land area is left available for, re for redevelopment. If you see the last map in black on the right side, the tiny red dotted areas are what we found considered um, still developable. So there were some major changes we made, especially to the school's side um, of the policy and renamed it to the growth and infrastructure policy. Here's one of the major issues the county was and is still facing around the time of our update. It's that the housing growth is not meeting the needs of our growing population. The bar graph here illustrates the number of housing units being built in the county each year. There was a massive housing boom during the 80s, as you can see, but the county is seeing much less activity now. And even if we're building as many housing units as were forecasted, we may still see a housing shortage in the county, which is indicated in red. On the other hand, we saw that the growth of multifamily units had started outpacing that of single family units. The blue line graph here shows the percent of multifamily units that were built each year of all the units being built. And throughout the last decade, since around 2010, we see that that share has been increasing steadily. So based on those growth contexts and trends around 2020, um, our policy update efforts focused more on understanding the relationship between housing, whether old or new, and enrollment growth. The table here shows one striking thing that we found. Um, if you see um, in the first bolded line, um, it shows that only 23.3% of our enrollment growth, the, of the share of enrollment growth is coming from new development. What's more striking is that only 4.3% of that share is coming from multifamily units new multifamily units. So we looked at those new units by high school cluster and plotted them along a horizontal axis marking total number of units built between 2011 through 2015 and the vertical axis of the share of new single family development. The clusters on the lower bottom half that you see here tend to have more units built in total but with a higher share of multifamily, whereas the upper half are showing less total number of units built, but a much higher percent of single family units. Um, the upper left corner are pretty much showing 100% single family units being built. We then looked at the number of students coming from these new developments. So the size of the bubble indicates the number of students that are living in these new units. And it's not hard to tell that the bubbles on the upper half, despite being less units, are larger than those on the bottom. So this means that even if areas like Gaithersburg, Walter Johnson, and Bethesda Chevy Chase um, high school cluster areas are seeing more housing units developed than most other clusters, the impact on enrollment from those units is actually less than the clusters um, that are seeing less new units developed, but more in the um, form of single-family housing. We also took a look at all housing units, no matter when they were built, um, and which type of housing that our students tend to come from. The bar on the left shows the share of MCPS's 2018 student enrollment living in each housing type. 
and the bar on the right shows the share of each housing type. At the top of each bar, in dark brown, are our multifamily high-rise units, which for student generation rate purposes, we define as five stories or higher. You can see on the left that they made up, I'm sorry, on the right that they made up 14% of the county's housing, but only 4% of the students live in these types of units. On the contrary, on the bottom, the yellow segments show that 55% of students live in a single family detached home, which only accounts to 47% of housing units. Furthermore, we took a deeper look of those single family detached units and found that uh, the 55% of students living in single family homes actually only come from a fraction of the entire single family units. So the yellow bar part on the right side of the graph has now been dissected to show um, the share of homes that do not have any students in white and the homes that have one two, three, or four or more students are shown in a gradating, gradating yellow shade. So what this is telling us is that 55% of the county's K through 12 students are only coming from a quarter of single family detached homes or 13% of all of our housing units. More than three quarters of our, all our single family detached units or 34% of all of our housing units do not have MCPS K through 12 students living in it. But does that mean these single family homes will no longer have students? So here we started Excuse looking. Me. Sorry, can you go back to the other, to the previous slide? I wanted to ask you before I, okay. So um, I'm not a math person. So I'm trying to understand what this, means from a policy perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And and so it just seems to me, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I make assumptions, but it seems to me that that when the uh, that that when the the numbers on one chart are similar to the numbers on the other chart, right? The yellows and the yellows, the maize and the maize, however, when 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 they're when they're matched up, the closer they are together, the the better it is from a policy perspective because it's saying essentially we're good. That's enough. If so, so what you have to look for in order to understand from a policy perspective where we're not good is when the numbers on one chart and the numbers on the other chart in that same color line are, um, do not match up. Because from a policy perspective, that says the, these, these are the things that can be or should be fixed. Can I, can I just jump in for yeah. a second, maybe to provide some broader context of the discussion that was taking place during the last update to what is now called the growth and infrastructure policy. Um, one of the big issues and big points of debate that a lot of this, um, this data was helping to answer was there were some uh, stakeholders who believed that 
uh, new multifamily development was driving a lot of the school enrollment growth. So part of this data was intended to see what, whether or not that was accurate. Um, and so, and I think there's more that you're going to share from that as well, whether or not new development in general was driving a lot of school enrollment growth. And therefore, because the, the sort of even bigger context during this time was we had the um, school moratorium in place uh, related to housing development. And so uh, this data was helping to kind of unpack what is actually happening, what types of housing, whether it's new, existing, multifamily, single family was driving student enrollment growth because there was a lot of different narratives. Um, and the council wanted to understand what was actually happening. So I think I understand the point of what you're asking about, um, but this was this data was actually telling a different story, which was that multifamily was not generating a lot of new students and contributing significantly to school capacity. If I may, there's, there's no good or bad to this chart. This chart is descriptive on trying to determine the source of students versus the type of housing. So it's not good or bad or something, it's a description. And no, I'm, I, I get that. What, what I'm asking is whether or not there's any, whether or not, it's just peculiar to me that, um, that the numbers seem so nearly matched, ex except, except the numbers that affect multifamily high-rise. And, and so I'm asking directly the question whether there's any greater policy, um, any greater policy lesson that comes from that. You all are saying, no, 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 that's not what this means. I'm, I, I'm willing to accept that. Um, but because I think there are a lot of reasons these numbers look the way they do. Like, for instance, you know, people are, um, people, you know, <laughs> People are doubling and tripling up in a lot of places. You know, it's not just one family per home. That that's or one family per apartment. That's just not the deal. But anyway, but that was my question: whether or not this um, this chart could be used to understand something else. And, and what you're saying is, it cannot be used to answer the question I'm asking. And I accept that. I guess I'd we like could to, keep in mind um, yeah. what your concerns are for our next update, but for now we're showing what our last update saw and tried to um, apply in our policy update. I think for Thank the you. next update it might be a good idea also. I mean, I hear Commissioner Branson that, you know, in the lower part, uh, maybe in the single family, people may be doubling up or tripling up in the case of immigrants, but in the higher, uh, I'm not, uh, and I don't want to say that all multifamily high-rise are higher income, but you need to do some kind of stratification by income because I get a feeling that a lot of the people with higher income may be sending their kids to private schools, to independent schools. So their kids may not be reflected on the MCPS enrollment. So we have to kind of take that into consideration. I'm sure that there's families in Bethesda that have children, Chevy Chase, Potomac, that decide we're going to get it, we're getting out of MCPS. And I'm not saying that private schools or independent schools are better, but it's their choice whether 
And then the, those numbers are not reflected here because we're only looking at MCPS. Right. I don't know whether there's any way that... But if I could, um, that. you know, uh, for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy here at the Planning Department, um, and that's correct. So when we look at adequate public facilities, we're talking about public schools, yeah, right? So, um, and I just wanted to take a, a little step back too and explain how we get to what you see here. We get every year from MCPS a data set that tells us where every single of their 161,000 students lives. Um, we don't know pers other personally identifiable information about those students. We just know uh, where they're, what their home address is and what grade they're in. And so we're able to use that and say, we, this particular address is generating X number of students uh, in, at the elementary school or middle school or high school level. And then we take that address and we have other attributes and things that we know about that address. In this case, what we said was, what do we know about how those homes are? Are they multifamily? Are they high rise? Are they single family detached? And that's how we get this. So if there is a single family home or a multifamily unit that has multiple households living in it, if they have students that are enrolled in an MCPS school, MCPS has that address, we have that address, we know that that one unit might be generating, 10 students. That's captured in here. Uh, but when you average them out over the large number of units that we have, you get the, the percentages that you see here. I would say, going back to Commissioner Branson's original question, that if all of these numbers matched up between these two bars, what, you would, what we would be saying is there is no difference between a multifamily, single-family, uh, high-rise, low-rise in the, the number of students that they generate because we see that they all match up. But we know that there is a difference. And so the question that we were trying to answer as we looked at this, as Director Stern was saying, was really like what is driving the enrollment growth? And you know, we did, to, to Commissioner Pinheiro's uh, question too, we looked at student generation, and we're not gonna dive into this because this was over multiple uh, work sessions that we had with the board and with the, the council in 2020, in tw uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, we looked at student generation by a multitude of different, once we knew the address, we're able to tie it to um, income levels in, the, in, in those neighborhoods, to home values, to uh, whether or not buildings had uh, their share of three-bedroom units in a, in a multifamily structure. We looked at it by a bunch of different ways and said, which of these things are, are, are data points that we think are helpful in structuring the policy? And we thought this one was quite informative, especially when you think of what Ms. Beck just previously showed. The share of new development that we're getting is overwhelmingly multifamily. And so this idea that new development as Director Stern was saying, is not the driver, is because what we're mostly seeing being built is multifamily, which is only generating 4% of our students. Yeah. And the, the bottom line to it all is that most of the changes in, in the school populations is from existing dwelling units. It's the puts and takes in, in existing dwelling units, and, and that's what, where this all goes. Please continue. And that's exactly what our next graph is showing. <laughs> so here we're looking at the average number of students coming out of single family detached units by the year they were last sold, regardless of when they were built. And we're tracking back 20 years. So on the right side is most recently sold. And on the left, as you go left, it's a year earlier, earlier. So um, older sales. The red line 
is showing the average of all single-family detached units, which will include units that were not sold for 20 years or longer, which there are a lot of. So even homes that were just sold, if you see at the bar graph for 2018, are showing more students than the average of all units. And as the number of years since the units were last sold increase, which will be going from right to left again, the number of students coming out of those units keep increasing way above the average of all units, all the way past 0.8 students, and only starts decreasing after about 10 to 15 years, which is probably when the kids start graduating from the system. So some units will stay inactive for longer periods, and those will be the bars that we're not showing further left to this graph as the years go by. But when they're sold again, it'll probably repeat this cycle again and start contributing to the turnover enrollment growth, which in our earlier table we showed makes up more than 75% of MCPS's enrollment growth now. Based on all these findings, during the 2020 GIP update, we introduced school impact area classifications to make the policy and its tools more context sensitive. Infill impact areas are shown in blue here. And these are, er my apologies. These are areas that tend to have higher growth in multifamily housing units and therefore lower development impacts on enrollment. So these would be the types of clusters we saw earlier in the bubble chart that are on the lower half of it. Turnover impact areas are shown here in brown, and they have generally lower housing growth and more turnover enrollment from existing units. The policy also included a classification for greenfield impact areas, but we started considering the when we started considering the future potential for growth left in each area, no part of the county was identified um, under this classification. Another major change was the replacement of the residential moratoria with a payment system, utilization premium payments for overutilized school service areas. Given the high share of enrollment growth coming from turnover units, not only was the moratorium ineffective in curbing enrollment growth, because even if you can't develop new units, you can still buy any of the existing units and enrollment will keep increasing. It was also counterintuitively preventing the county from collecting impact tax that would help fund classroom additions. There was also a continuing pattern of recently master planned areas falling under moratorium either entirely or the majority of the land area falling under moratorium. Also, it led to equity concerns because whether a school's level of utilization gains greater attention outside of its immediate community often depended on whether there's a, mount, there's a lot of development pressure within the school service area. And the overutilized schools with little to no development pressure tend to be those with higher farms rates and less advocacy power to advocate for classroom additions. One additional change that we made was to consider multifamily units and structures built 1990 or later when calculating our student generation rates. Why? We could see in the graph here that there's a significant difference in the rates 
based on whether a multifamily structure was built before or after 1990. The darker blue shows the newer multifamily structures that are around half the rate of the older units or, or older structures. There may be various factors behind this, whether it's the number of uh, size of the units or the affordability of it. But overall, what we saw was that newer multifamily units being built in general are less conducive to generating as many students as they did decades ago. So now we'll take a look at the different components of the current school's GIP that we updated based on all this context. The annual school test is how we evaluate the adequacy of schools each fiscal year. We use MCPS's enrollment projections and capacity data from their Educational Facilities Master Plan and Capital Improvement Program. And then we test how each school will look like four years later which is meant to account for how long it takes for a development application to be approved, get built, and then start generating its share of students. This table is captured from MCPS's FY 2023 publication and used for our current annual school test that is in effect. The first column under projections, where it says 22 to 23, is what is now considered the current school year, although it was projected when MCPS published this. So we start counting the next column as one-year projections and go out to four years um, and test that school year for um, school adequacy. In some cases, um, like we see right here, well, our annual school test will modify MCPS's data to better fit our purposes. For example, this table currently shows Woodward High School opening with over 2,000 seats, but with zero enrollment. Similarly, Walter Johnson, which we know will be relieved through the opening of Woodward High School, is still showing to be overcrowded. Without knowing exactly how many students will be reassigned, we modify the enrollment projections data following our own guidelines, which are shown in a separate um, public publication that we call the annual school test guidelines. Since we're mostly interested in whether there's enough school capacity to go around, we use a hypothetical scenario of balancing the utilization rates across all schools that MCPS identifies as being part of their upcoming student reassignment plan. So for, for this case, I'm only showing Walter Johnson High School in the table, but there will be an additional five down county high schools that we used to modify the enrollment counts for each school year that we're testing. So after all those are calculated or modified, we measure each school's projected utilization against the preset standards shown here on the graph, which are a combination of utilization rate and seat deficit thresholds. For example, if an elementary school is projected to be at a 125% utilization rate and a seat deficit of 100, then it'll be placed in a tier one UPP. Also, because it's only two students away from the seat deficit threshold to the next tier, it has an adequacy ceiling of two seats. 
This means that if a development application is expected to generate more than two elementary school students, the UPP rate will be adjusted higher. We'll see an example of how that works later while we're discussing development reviews. So with those annual school test results, we provide a table that looks like this for each elementary, middle, and high school um, that shows projected capacity and enrollment that we used for testing and the UPP tier status that the school service area will fall under during the fiscal year and the adequacy ceilings to the subsequent um, tiers. An additional thing that we've started providing along with the annual school test is a school utilization report. The report has a countywide report and an individual school report that helps us understand enrollment trends from different perspectives. Here, for example, is a page, is a page from a report for Garrett Park Elementary School for fiscal year 2023. If you recall, this is a school that was brought to light during a recent development application As you can see in the school's trend graph, where the past 15 years enrollment in light blue is measured against the school's capacity, this school has actually seen minimal periods of overutilization due to a very timely capital investment. And the enrollment growth seems to have peaked a few years ago, even before the pandemic. Unlike the concerns that were brought up during the public testimony, the school is currently underutilized with no portable classrooms and is projected to remain underutilized for the next five school years. This now shows part of the countywide utilization report. On the left is a utilization trend graph of all MCPS elementary schools for the past 15 years and next five combined together. We can see that countywide enrollment had in fact been outpacing the capacity increase for nearly, nearly a decade in the beginning of where the trend graph shows. But the pace of enrollment growth started tapering off around the mid-2010s, and the capacity available now and what will become available in the next few years is looking to be sufficient, at least at the countywide level. The bar graph on the right illustrates the percent of schools operating at various utilization levels. The blue indicates underutilized schools. The green shows schools in balanced utilization. And from yellow to red, we're showing increasing levels of overutilization and the percent of schools falling under those levels. Throughout the past 15 years, as you go from top to bottom, we can see the blue and green steadily taking over as the red and orange parts are nearly disappearing in the next five years. Given that middle and high school enrollment trends tend to follow elementary school years just with a few years delay as the students age up through the system, we may be approaching a new era where overutilized capacity is not the main concern of our adequate school infrastructure. And because of how much enrollment growth we see as coming from housing turnover, we also started including a housing analysis by each school service area in the utilization report. This page here summarizes um, the high school service area analysis. 
where schools are lined up in order, so shown in the top graph, by the number of single-family units sold in this service area. The first graph um, are showing housing units, um, single-family, detached, or attached in 2021. The second graph, in the same order, shows the number of new single-family or multifamily units. And at the bottom, we show a total tally of all housing units in those school service areas for reference. What's interesting to see here in light of all of our findings or that, we, that I shared earlier is that school service areas like Walter Johnson or Bethesda Chevy Chase, where there are often concerns of school adequacy due to development activity, are showing strong housing sales activity that lead to high enrollment impact. So next, we'll explain student generation rates, or what we abbreviate as SGRs. So SGRs can be defined as the average number of students coming from a certain housing type and or area. It's simply calculated by dividing the number of students by the number of units. Here's an illustration of an example where there are three students living in four single-family detached units and two students living in a multifamily structure with 12 units. So even if it's one structure, we calculate these as 12 units. So we divide the three by four to get a single family SGR rate of 0.75. And likewise, a multifamily single SGR of 0.167. So planning calculates the official student generation rates for each infill and turnover or for infill and turnover impact areas for each different um, housing type by geocoding, as um, um, Mr. Sartori um, just said, by geocoding all the MCPS student enrollment addresses to our housing data. So for the GIP, for the growth and infrastructure policy, um, each housing type and each impact area is being calculated, unlike um, previously where we only had one countywide rate. So this is now used during development reviews and master plans to estimate the enrollment impact from new residential depend units depending on the type of um, area it's located in. When we update the official SGRs every other year, we also adjust school impact tax rates. We multiply the official SGRs for each impact area and housing type to MCPS school construction cost per student. So this actually leads to an actual cost of accommodating the students generated from new units being assessed to the, to the developers. So these school impact taxes are imposed regardless of the adequacy status of a school service area, but are exempt for MPDUs. The current rates for FY23 are shown in this table. We're in the process of calculating the new rates for FY24 and 25, and are expecting to see an increase due to the post-pandemic enrollment growth and the recent construction cost inflation. So utilization premium payments are again, what we introduced during the 2020 policy update to replace the moratorium. So for development proposed and overutilized school service areas, 
instead of blocking the source of additional impact tax revenue, we're collecting additional payments on top of the school impact tax. These rates are calculated by applying the factors shown here in the table um, to each applicable school impact tax rates by impact area and housing type. So now here is our um, quick development review scenario using an actual FY 2023 annual school test result, but this is a hypothetical um, development proposal. So let's say a developer comes forward with a project proposing 48 townhouses in the following turnover impact area. We calculate the enrollment impact of those units um, by applying the official student generation rates of turnover impact area and single family attached units and estimate the expected students to be about 10 elementary school students, five middle school students, and seven high school students. Also, the FY23 school test results show that there is plenty of room in the middle school. And there is a footnote under the high school that says the enrollment data was modified to reflect the impending boundary study, which will happen probably a few year, months and a year or so before the Woodward High School and the Northwood High School edition opens. But the elementary school is already in a tier one UPP. And the student estimate, which is 10 elementary school students, exceeds the adequacy ceiling, which says eight under tier two for Highland View Elementary School. Two, there's two students um, are, will not fall under tier one payment. So in that case, we show that eight of the 10 seats needed to accommodate the enrollment impact of 10 students will be charged at the tier one rate. But the next two students that are considered to come out of this development will be charged a tier two rate. So this is applied appropriately when we're assessing the utilization premium payment to the developer, this hypothetical developer. So that's actually the conclusion of our briefing. Um, and if there are any questions or additional thoughts, um, I'd be happy to hear them. I'll just summarize. It's simple, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I understand all of the math be, be behind this. It's, I, I think it's, you know, again, it's above my pay grade, but but it, it's a better policy than where we were, you know, five years ago, and, and it makes sense to um, make make this a fiscal uh, challenge to people instead of a yes/no answer and stopping development. But that's just me. Anybody else have anything outside your job description? It, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into that again. <laughs> Uh, Ms. Branson. Yeah, let me just say, I don't understand math. I'm not a math person. But I was really impressed by this. I, I just was fascinated. I think this is great. So so I just have um, just one really simple question, one really pedestrian question. Um, from a definitional standpoint, when you all use the word school or the phrase school utilization, are you using the same definition as as the school board? 
Um, is is everybody in line with what that means? Does that mean one little one kid per seat? Does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? And is everybody use? Does everybody mean the same thing by it? Because I'm thinking that if everybody's not using this phrase in the same way, then all this math is beautiful. But at the end of the day, you're still going to come out with some real different kind of interpretations. So that's my question. So I think that is a good question. Um, first thing to say is um, the concept of overutilization is um, interesting. Um, so the Board of Ed might think one thing, but what a lot of community members think of overcrowding is hard to hard to comprehend. So what we define as overutilization might often differ from what community members um, consider overutilization. I've, um, I've gotten some community comments about the size of the classrooms in their school, I mean the size of classes in their schools, and that is certainly not what we consider for our um, for our purposes, I believe MCPS, the capital um, division, I don't think that's the right <laughs> way to say it, but I, I think it's similar to them either, to them too. Class sizes are under MCPS operations and not their capital division, um, the capital budget side. So in that sense, we are pretty similar to how MCPS considers overutilization. It is based on um, capacity in comparison to enrollment. One slight difference is MCPS has a guideline for when they'll consider um, classroom additions for each school, and our numbers are based off of that, especially when, we're, um, when we set the tiers and thresholds um, for the utilization premium payments, but we're not using those exact numbers. We, they have one number, I believe, for, I, th I think it's like if, set there are, if the enrollment is projected to be 72 seats above their capacity, they will start considering a capital, um, some classroom addition or some, some capacity relief plan. We use a utilization rate on top of just seat deficits we don't necessarily use 72 either. Utilization rates, by the way, is calculated by dividing enrollment by capacity. So when you hear 100% utilization, that means every student coming to the school has a seat at the school. When it goes above 100%, that means we call it seats. Everyone will have an actual chair, but the capacity that was calculated by number of kids that should be sitting in classrooms and the number of classrooms is less than the actual number of students that are enrolled in that school. One other thing I'll, you mentioned in your presentation where you differ from the school board is you do mathematical redistricting in a sense. If you have Woodward High School, you know it has capacity. The, the school board hasn't recognized that capacity but you make some assumption about redistricting. So uh, it seems like a fair assessment. Uh, any other, com oh, uh, what is Commissioner Hill? Oh, go ahead. Uh, you, you were first. No, I, I was just gonna ask about redistricting. I mean, we, we in the past have never gotten involved, the planning board, Thank in terms God. of the boundaries, <laughs> no? No, that's Thank solely God. a board of education. 
issue. Okay. Uh, that's why I was kind of asking about redistricting. Now, the, the other question, the, the PP, what is it, PPU? UPP. Okay. Does the money that gets collected for that goes to that particular school or it just goes to the Board of Education? I believe we have conditions written in the resolution that the UPPs are supposed to be used for for that particular I mean, maybe school? Maybe not necessarily that exact school, but plans that will relieve that school. Okay. Because I think more and more MCPS is using student reassignment plans to relieve several schools together at one site. So my understanding is school um, utilization premium payments that might have been collected for one school um, could be used at for a school that school MCPS is planning to school. build to relieve yeah. that school. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be used for that elementary school. Let's say that elementary school is tier one, tier two, whatever. It doesn't have to be used for that element. It could be used for the middle school or the high school or the the area, or not necessarily? No, so confused? it has to be used at the same level, but it can only be used for a, a, a capital project that is intended to relieve the overcrowding okay. that's occurring at that elementary school, let's say. Right. So it may not be at that specific school. Yeah. If they say, look, we can't build an, anymore at that school, we're going to build another school, or we're going to build an addition at another school, and that's going to help relieve the overutilization, that, then it can be used there. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Thank I you. think as an example of that, the development, the hypothetical proposal I showed at Highland Element, Highland View Elementary yeah. School, we were saying, oh, if a developer comes here, they will be charged a utilization premium mm -hmm. payment. It probably won't be able to be used at Northwood High School, which is actually expecting a capital project as well. Okay. Commissioner Hill. Yeah, this is a future scenario, so it's a crystal ball, so a real question, but it's one that bothers me quite a bit. Because when I think about sort of compact growth and urbanization growth and the pattern that you see in large-scale cities, what tends to happen is a cultural shift happens at some point where young families that are, you know, already in multifamily units, uh, because probably that's where they can afford or that's a lifestyle choice, right? will at some point decide not to move into the single-family house. And in Montgomery County, that could be highly driven by the cost of those, mm -hmm. right? But they decide to have children. So they have children in the multifamily units. And if you look at many urban areas, the cultural shift in that is like a threshold, right? You sort of get to one point, and all of a sudden, people see other people doing it, so they do it. Right, it kind of, kind of makes sense to the circumstances. People don't live in Tokyo the way they do because they want to, right? So I, I just want to, I, I want to make sure you. It's a great data presentation on why we're not currently worried about multifamily mm -hmm. student generation, but if you, if you follow, what I present as a logic of that story and sort of an experience base as areas urbanize. I think we need to be really careful for when that threshold hits because I think it'll be a dramatic change quickly. And I'll note that in one diagram you had that had the blue bar charts with the red 4.4 whatever average, that was closing, right? The, the curve had played itself out and was coming back down to that rate. And then on another chart that had, I think, the 2010 multifamily growth units is going up, right? Because we're building more of them, right? That's part of the urbanizing part. So I just, um, 
I would feel better that we continue to follow that really carefully out of the concern that that threshold's going to hit and there will be a social behavioral change that suddenly makes it happen and that could really be a change in school stuff. Sure. Yeah, one thing I would say is that, you know, part of the, um, I think the beauty of this policy is that we're required to look at it every four years. Mm -hmm. So Ms. Beck referred to this, that the 2020 is the quadrennial update. Well, the next one's coming up in 2024, and we actually start that in July internally. And then by September of this year, we'll be working in the community in, in developing this. And so we'll be rerunning a lot of the data and a lot of the analysis so we might see if there are shifts occurring in the, you know, the student generation for these different types of housing units. And that might necessitate a change in policy in some way. Um, so hopefully, you know, by reviewing it every four years, we'll catch those types of things. Um, I think, uh, you know, when we did look at, it was an interesting kind of um, study that we did when we were trying to understand, you know, what is generating students. And when you look at a single family home, an individual single family home, there is this cycle that it goes through where it might have no students for a while and then people move in with students, it might be one, then it's two, maybe three, and then it's two, then it's one, and then it's zero for a while. And then when you average that out over all of them, you do see that, you know, it's this wave, right? Whereas when you look at a multifamily unit, you know, it changes much more, like it's uh, erratically, if you will, right? So you might have none for a long, long time and then one and for a couple of years, and then that's done. And so it's more blips. There's no full cycle. That doesn't mean that you don't have multifamily individual units where you have a family that will go through that full life cycle. It's just not as likely in the data that we're seeing yet. And we'll see if that changes over okay. time. I'm okay. glad to hear I, the four-year cycle's yeah. a good one because it probably takes, what, five or six years to have a child and have them be, reach school yeah. age. So hopefully we can, we can see that happen in that time frame. Um, by the way, since I've been dealing with these numbers not directly here. Uh, looking at resale of single-family houses is a great, a great step forward. Uh, you know that wasn't in play in the '90s, and I think that really is capturing something that's important. Right, I, and I, I, oh. if I may, as an, a very old demographer, uh, the one thing I know is is that everybody in um, in kindergarten today was born five years ago. And, and when you look at uh, birth rates globally, you still have on the U.S. a, a downward trend on, on replacement populations. Um, at some point, that will get to us if, if that changes. But as long as you look at long term what's happening on birth rates and in migration, you might be able to capture uh, the possibility of increases, but but again, the best thing is to, to monitor continually, because you you can only be surprised for so long. <laughs> they, they, uh, people need to be born, uh, or they need to come in by immigration, and if you track those two things, you'll have some handle on on what's going on. Uh, anybody else? Just I see one quick question. Oh, yeah. One quick question. Do we need to do a? This is completely separate, but we probably have to do some kind of a, a racial justice and social equity analysis of the GIA, of the, of the growth and infrastructure policy with regards to school. Do we have to do that? Yeah. Is that going to be done, or how so, does it affect the GIA? 
That's a very good question. What, what I can say, and I'm also looking to legal to see if they wanted to weigh in, the county's racial equity and social justice law specifically uh, mentions the planning board with regards to examining racial equity as part of its review of master plans. And that's all it says okay, with regards to the board. Right. So, uh, but because this is a council action, uh, this might be something that the Office of Legislative Oversight would likely be responsible for, because they're the ones who are actually responsible for racial equity and social justice impact statements yeah. for bills and for ZTAs. So they would likely be the ones who would be responsible for producing that document uh, when the next update to the GIP goes to the council. Okay. Thank and, you. and I would suspect that they may not be required for this because this is adopted through resolution. It's not a bill. And so they are, the law does specify bills That's and correct. ZTAs, but so not, not resolutions. But it's still a good question. Yeah. It's something to be mindful of for the next process. Okay. Thank you. If, well, just one other thing I wanted to just highlight. There was the, the question about um, school boundary adjustments and things like that. And it, the one thought that came to my mind was I wanted to just highlight the the value of our partnership with MCPS here. Uh, I did say that we get these data, uh, enrollment data, that is really useful information. And it's really helped to set kind of like a, you know, a baseline understanding of what we're doing with all of this, right? We, we, when we can say, we know exactly where every student is living. If this is not based on a survey or, you know, however, it is really valuable data to us and to the county in setting policy. Uh, but also, you know, I did mention we do quadrennial updates of the policy, but we do uh, uh, every two years we update those student generation rates. And every two years we update the, um, uh, the impact taxes based on that. But MCPS also gets some value out of this. We then provide similar data. We, we'll calculate student generation rates for them at a cluster level, at a school level, uh, that they find useful for their models. And so it's a, they get some value out of the work that we do with the data they provide to us. And so it's a really great partnership. And they can use that information um, in setting their own policies, whether it's about a boundary change or just what is projected in individual schools. Yeah, I'd just like to comment really quickly, just to acknowledge what I hear in the community of two concerns that we're not really addressing, but they aren't particularly land use matters, and that is the, the matter of program and core capacity, um, which um, really the school system needs to address, and the fact that we average some things that the students and families in the situation don't experience as an average, right? Because if you're in a if you're in an over capacity cluster, high school cluster, for example, and um, and the boundaries haven't been adjusted in the assumption that we're using on land use, you know, your school's still over capacity, right? And I, I, I'm not expecting anyone to address that, but I just wanted to say that in the context of what we're talking about, and that really has to do with school operations. Okay. I, yeah, one oh. more thing. Just, just one more thing, and it's really quick. I asked you about whether everyone's using the same definitions for school utilization, whether planning and whether the Board of Education use the same definitional framework, your answer to me was basically not really. You, you all are using different nuanced kind of um, understandings. So um, that needs to be said. <laughs> that needs to be said, like, you know, put it in a footnote. Because because to me, that's where um, the, the misunderstandings and the potential discord comes from you know everybody thinks everybody is using that means the same thing when when they say 
X. Well, if you don't mean the same thing, then it's very easy for people to get stuff twisted. So, um, so let me just suggest to you that that um, your your the definitional framework that's being um, uh, attached to this um, by by planning is made clear, and 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 whatever you believe the definitional framework that the school board is using. Um, is also made clear because those terms uh, are very, you know, they that's the whole ball game. What those terms mean. Thank you. Sure, I would say you know, in the school utilization that itself is a definition that I think we all are in agreement on. It's you know, uh, number of students divided by capacity. Um, where you cut things off or how far out you look. Are you looking at utilization one year out, two years out? As we look out four years out, MCPS oftentimes will look six years out. Um, you know, there may be differences. And then where I think Ms. Beck was really trying to emphasize is that what people consider over-utilization is more subjective. You know, how you calculate utilization is pretty objective. But where people are feeling like, hmm, that's not good or this is good, that's much more subjective. Than you know, this is not, um, well, um, that's not really what I heard her say. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, the to me the bottom line is these are the kinds of terms that should not be left to people to kind of figure out on their own what it means because this is where the money is. I mean, this is truly and <laughs> literally as well as figuratively, this is where the money hits. So, um, you know, it, unless there is complete agreement between planning and the school board as to what that means, and it doesn't sound to me there is. It sounds to me like it is um, that there is a core agreement and yet there are nuances used by both entities to explain something else that's important to them. Um, and that's cool. I mean, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer here. It's just that I really do believe that people need to understand what that framework is. And I, all it takes is sort of like a footnote. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I think that concludes uh, this session. Uh, we are adjourned. Thank you.